0: of your seat right now shaking your rump then you clearly were not uh, uh, you did not grow up in the 80s that was of course christmas in hollis by rap trio extraordinaire and legends in the hip-hop community run dmc and why are we playing christmas in hollis because it's long road to ruin bitches that's right tonight we pay tribute to the greatest action movie of all time, Die Hard, and if you will remember that movie, you'll know that Christmas in Hollows was indeed played in the first moment of that film. Good evening, everybody. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. and joining me tonight, as he does on each and every broadcast, he's actually been on more of these than I have, and I'm the one that started this whole thing, <laughs> my good friend, He who brings life back to music, Sean Comer. How do you do,
1: sir? I am, as always, your madman in the black N7 hoodie, as you all hopefully saw from that very, very damn handsome-looking title card of ours this week.
0: Yes, I want to take a few moments and thank... um, First of all, I want to thank all of our fans. When you're, as I've said on other podcasts, when you're just some schmuck with a podcast, it's fun to know that you have fans. You know, I guess, I guess fans come in all varieties. Uh, so it's cool to know that people like what we're doing. They enjoy listening to the podcast. And uh, one such fan opted to, of his own free will, uh, draw us up a title card, which, is, uh, which you should be seeing on this podcast tonight, uh, that features myself. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about the representation of me on this, by the way. No, he did an awesome job. Uh, and Sean with good old uh detective mclean and uh so i want to give a big shout out and thanks to benjamin J. cologne who's one of our fans who opted to do this of his own free will and we greatly appreciate his talent you can actually see more of his artwork at soulexo.com, s-o-u-l-e-x-o.com uh once again yes. thank you very much sir
1: Yes, um, I've actually kind of been missing the boat a little bit on which of his projects I've been plugging. I've been mentioning about the last oh, last couple shows or so that he happens to be the artist for the comic book Revolution of the Mask, which those of you who are well tied into the online geek community out there know is the indie comic book that's been kind of in the works off and on for some time by uh, co-creator, uh, Louis Loveout, who is better known as Linkara from That Guy with the Glasses, hosts their comic review show Atop the floor of Wall. Uh, ben, uh, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, uh, kind of asked me if instead, in addition, if I could also plug and give a little more emphasis to a book that he actually co-created, uh, Exo go over to soexo.com. If you like the title card, if you think that's striking, if you think he's got some attention to detail going there, just from taking a couple of reference shots from the movie of Bruce Willis and a couple of reference shots of myself and Mark, which, by the way, he did an extremely lovely job of that, by all means, get over to the website and check out what he's able to come up with just from his own varied imagination. The man is, from what I can tell, an absolute comic scholar, especially Spider-Man. And we, we've had a couple of just real you know, talk-each-other's-ear-off conversations over Facebook about DC, Marvel, artists, writers. I've learned a ton from him. Uh, I've, I've learned a great deal as a bit of a noob to the medium myself. But he really did a magnificent job, and it's all the more it's all the more easy to appreciate when you consider he did that over a weekend. He did that over the course of about uh, three days or so from, from doing the ink and pencils all the way up to adding the color. Uh, He had sent me the fully finished product by late Saturday night after he started it on, uh, I want to say it was late Thursday, late Friday, something like that. But it's really a big, a big step up, and I'm just – I'm totally geeked, and it's surreal at how many people who listen to the show week after week have started sending me friend requests on Facebook out of the blue um, and kind of chatting me up about the show. And you guys are becoming not just listeners, but you're expanding my friends too. Uh, this is becoming something that's much bigger than just a concept – that Mark and I dreamed up a little over a year ago when I happened to have a couple of movies that I just wasn't quite sure how Jeremy Lambert and I could tackle them effectively on bad movie review club. So by all means, thank you from the bottom of my heart to all of you who are just expanding our fan base and getting to know us and really making this even more fun, making this even more of a community. And Speaking of which, um, I want to say a big old howdy and welcome back to everybody out there at Manic Expression. I've been slacking on getting this podcast posted up there so we can keep getting to know more of you and keep getting to be a bigger part of that community. I think gradually that's kind of becoming more of our home of this podcast, more so than 411 Mania is.
0: Yeah, Um, I I stopped posting this on 411 Mania a little while ago when... um, yeah, you know, j- just when it didn't seem like we were getting a tremendous amount of traffic there for whatever the reasons were. So I went and sought out greener pastures. Um, yeah, the MMA podcast seems to do fine there, but our movie one kept getting buried just for whatever re- the reasons were.
1: Yeah. And, and, and let's be quite frank, we, we weren't getting much traffic and both you and I, no matter how much we love the people that we work with there, um, everybody from Jeremy Thomas and and Larry Zonka right up to contributors like Robert Winfrey, Sam Arcady, Jeremy Lambert, Gavin Napier, uh, Patrick Thomas, uh, Robert Cooper. God help me if I'm actually leaving anybody out of there. I apologize and I don't mean to, but, It just becomes one of those things where when you see what's become of a site that you've loved for about seven or eight years or so. Well, well,
0: hang on, Sean. I don't know if it's it's even so much that um, as it is. I don't know how well podcasts do on that particular site. Um, Some sites, you know, there there are some sites where people can go and listen to podcasts and and they're fairly popular. I don't know um, on a site that is, primarily centered around wrestling how many people are going to go there to listen to a movie podcast like i said the mma1 seems to do well and it's promoted there and you know and it's fine there's no there's no issue um the wrestling podcast that larry does i think all seem to do fine i can't imagine they don't um but i think people go there strictly you know for the for the written word you know, in the movie section and i don't know how many people were, were stopping you know were, we're clicking on the link to listen to our podcast and, and if people did um, you could have just as easily gone directly to the uh, Blog Talk Radio or iTunes or Stitcher. So, you know, sure. it just—it was one of those things where where that may have not have been the best place to park the the podcast. Is all.
1: And, and to put kind of a fine point on it, to to be honest, I've kind of felt the same way for a while now. And again, it's it's nothing against the people that we work with. It's just it is to one extent or another kind of an environmental thing. And the fact is, is even, I've even said a few times on Facebook lately, I kind of know in the back of my mind when I'm going to be done writing Give Life Back to Music. Um, and I think when that's done, that's probably going to be the sunset on my days as a written contributor there. Um, don't get me wrong, and i gotta, I got a ways to go before I really feel completely done with that. But...
0: Yeah, you gotta you gotta do an entire retrospective of Clutch before you're done.
1: Uh, might get around to Clutch. I got, <laughs> but I got a lot of other artists that I do want to get to, and no, I like think. That, and I think after that, you you and I and you know, if anybody out there from, I know Jason Teasley is a is a very regular listener and very big fan. Uh, anybody out there from the Casual Heroes? I quite frankly, I, I like you guys. I would love to get on board there. And maybe bring some of my uh, rantings on pop culture minutia and just rantings on rantings sometimes about this, that, and everything else that pops into my head at 3 a.m. when I'm trying to push myself through work. Um, I, I would love to get on there and blog for blog for you guys. Maybe go, maybe do a guest spot on a podcast. I still want to get a lot more involved with manic expression, especially as we gradually start transitioning into video. Um, but it's, it's all part of the fact that I want year two for, I want year two for Long Road to Ruin to really make year one look indeed like humble beginnings. Because Hal, truly, I'd, like
0: to, I'd like to go through one year of, uh, doing Long Road to Ruin without, uh, you know, w- making sure that we finish everything that we start. Hello, Rocky.
1: You know what? Yeah,
0: we really do need to get that on the 2014 calendar. Just in in closing, so we can actually get on with the actual show, just to to, to all of our fans who who write us constantly, um, the guys of Casual Heroes that we've talked to, Manic Expressions, the 401 listeners, all of the guys that have come to join the and Broadcasting Network, just want to big say you know, to, to Jesse Starcher, I want to mention you by name. You're awesome. And uh, I don't care what Jed says. We love you, and we 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 appreciate um, your enthusiasm for what we're doing. Because again, this is just two schmoes talking movies, and um, people tune in every other week to, to listen in on uh, on our analysis. Which just just a side thing. And you know, you're you're prone to these sidetracky rants, Mister Comer, and so I'm gonna have my say right now. Well, uh, this is what we a... have
1: you here for. We have we have you there to kind of rein me in and kind of downshift <laughs> me a little bit when I start to click it into too high of a gear. So <laughs> that's
0: true, but I but I'm gonna I'm gonna have my say today. Um, on a, uh, now to something completely different. Uh, there's a there are two sets of reviewers. I know you you come from the, the review culture, and we've talked about that on this show many times.
1: Um, mm.
0: There are two that I like. And two that I'm kind okay. of you know stuck to these are these are the two brands that I tend to covet and I don't really go outside of them. Um, that's the Red Letter Media, as I've mentioned many times before. They do the straight ones, which is the um, half in the bag, and yep. then occasionally they do the, the more longer extended ones under the guise of Mister Plinkett, who, which yep. is the, which is how I got into this. I love the Plinkett reviews of Star Wars, and while I don't agree mm. with every word that they say, I tend to. Favor their opinions. They, you know, I think they're on the money nine out of ten times. Same thing with Confused Matthew, um, who actually got very uh, revealing in the last couple of his reviews. I actually learned a little bit about the guy, um, and he's got tons of fans out there. I mean, to the point where he can't answer everyone back. But his reviews—I think he got famous on, on his negative review of The Lion King, where people wanted to find where he lived and burn him, burn him to the ground. But, uh, and he's sort of taken off since then. Um, but I've always enjoyed his reviews, and I generally don't have anything negative to say about him, even if I don't agree with what he's saying. But I'm in the middle mm-hmm. of his, his Man of Steel review, and there's a, there's a phenomenon happening here. I, I think people want to hate this movie. I, I can't... I, I don't think I've ever been this far off on a feeling towards it. I mean, we talked at great length about Man of Steel... You know, And I, I said that there were some problems with it, but ultimately I thought, it, I thought what they were going for was, was a good uh, – they, they did a good, a good enough job with what they were trying to do with that movie. And I know that there are people from you know, all of my various circles, both personal and you know, internet, that have lambasted it. And I feel like – and then I'm hearing Confused Matthew do his review of it, and I'm like, this – I've never once yelled at my radio – while listening to him talk. And that's how, like, far into madness he drove me. It, there's a thing really? out there where people just want to hate Man of Steel. Like, they, they, there's no way that they can accept what they, what it is they're seeing on... To the point where they're missing the obvious, you know, uh, points of the movie. And nitpicking at things that are ultimately not worth uh, deconstructing. So just this is my little rant there. I think... Uh, I think we now live in a world that finds itself needing to hate Man of Steel for some odd reason. I have no other explanation. And there's somebody out there who's going, uh, Radlidge, you've now completely overthought this. It's just a terrible movie. No, it isn't, God damn it. And I stand by that. I stand by Brock Lesnar was a draw, and Ultimate Warrior was a draw, and Man of Steel was a fine movie. I'm going to go do drugs now. I'll be back later. Now, let's get on with this.
1: And, and, and you know,
0: those are...
1: Those are exactly the kind of reviewers that I really don't favor listening to. Um, I tend to go for a more even-handed, even-handed approach. Uh
0: no, I like a good, uh, I like a good rant.
1: All right. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Yeah. You know, you know, will will I'll just, I'll just kind of curve it there, kind of unexpectedly, briefly, so that we can kind of get on to talking about Die Hard.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, so way back. In in 1988, my God, I was like 12 (laughs) when this movie came out. All right. Good shit. Uh, A little-known movie came out with uh, a headline star who was most recently known for his work on a comedy show. Um, Oh, God, what was the name of it? I used to know this. Um, I remember this show only – I never – watched it. I was kind of too young to really be into the show that he used to be on. But, um, I remember like I tuned in once and he was like, we, you know, (laughs) he was delivering this one particular line that I always thought was really funny. He was like, uh, moonlighting. Thank you, Robert Winfrey. Um, yeah, he used to be on moonlighting and he's sitting there. It's like, they bag them. We tag them. They do this. We do this. And I always thought that was really, really funny. And, uh, But his work on that show and his, I guess, work before that did not convince the studio that he would be a tremendous draw for their um, action movie, Die Hard. But as it turns out, it became a cultural phenomenon and probably one of the best action movies of all time. Uh, Certainly, one of the things that made Die Hard so great was it deconstructed the superman element of action movies and gave you a fun thrill ride, but one that saw your hero being very vulnerable. I mean, if you follow what happens to, uh, the the main character here is played by Bruce Willis, uh, Lieutenant John McClane, you see him completely, uh, even though he's a cop, he's sort of a fish out of water. He's you know, caught unaware of what's happening. He's just sort of reacting to a situation that is, you know, blowing up around him almost quite literally. And uh, he doesn't have shoes. I remember that was the big thing back when Die Hard came out. Was he was an action, <laughs> an action hero taking on terrorists and he's got no shoes. <laughs> so he spends half the movie bleeding out of his feet. But, um, Tell me, as we do with any of these franchises, what brought you to Die Hard,
1: Sean? To be honest, I had heard of it, but believe it or not, I was actually a little bit young to be aware of it at the time. Um, I I did not see the first Die Hard until I was probably in my 20s. I mean, you were At the time, you were 12 years old. That's about the age when you see a movie like Die Hard, and you kind of got a few more resources, a few more smarts at your disposal to be able to see movies that technically you're probably not supposed to be seeing. Um, In my case, I got away with that exactly once because I somehow managed managed to talk my parents into letting eight-year-old me watch RoboCop.
0: My father had a belief that um, the world was out there, and I better get used to it, so short... Short of hardcore pornography, I was allowed to watch anything I want at age five. So you know what I so, so you know what I used to rent at five years old? Hot dog, okay. the movie, hamburger, the movie, Porkies. Uh, you know, basically, I have like the king of '80s hard body movies, and I was in elementary school.
1: Fucking Porkies, uh, <laughs> but, but no, actually, I. What I remember more is I remember actually seeing at one point a trailer for Die Hard 2, and that was when I first became aware of the franchise, having uh, really not knowing thing one about the first movie. And then obviously as as time went on, along came Die Hard 3, and then came... live free or die hard. I'm probably, am I getting the it was it live free or die hard that came first and then a good day to die hard? Yes. Which came first, the punch to the kidneys or the kick to the scrotum? <laughs> uh,
0: so we'll get there in a week from now.
1: Oh, we will. Yes, we, will. that's right. I keep, that's right. I keep forgetting this month. We're doing these a week between, but, um, at the time, I wasn't surprisingly really all that into action movies. At least, not very many of the great ones yet, because I was still, I was still fairly young. I was ob- I was arguably more into uh, sci-fi, uh, comedies, movies like that. Um, a few classics that Dad managed to expose me to along the way. But then finally, I caught up with this one and. It really is just an absolute genius of an action movie because of ev- precisely because of everything that you mentioned, and that's because it takes it takes away the standard permutation of the hero from that time and throws you into something completely different with a totally different kind of hero, um, which is funny because actually when this came out, it's, it's definitely, absolutely worth noting here, the people who turned this role down, you have, to, you have to know that in order to completely appreciate just what we got with Bruce Willis. Uh, this was turned down along the way by, first off, Frank Sinatra turned it down because initially Die Hard was based on a 1979 novel called Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe and that was a sequel to, a, to his 1966 novel, The Detective. And in 1968, that one had been turned into a movie starring Frank Sinatra. So in a roundabout way, this was initially supposed to be a sequel to The Detective. And contractually, the studio asked 73-year-old Blue Eyes uh, if he would be willing to come in and star in it. He, of course, turned it down. After that, they re the script a little bit and pitched it to Arnold Schwarzenegger as a sequel to Commando. Schwarzenegger passed it up. Then along the way, it was also offered to Sylvester Stallone, who said no, Harrison Ford, who said no, Don Johnson, who said no, Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds. All of them passed the thing up. Until finally, they happened upon... Uh, moonlighting Bruce Willis and having to take a chance on him and the rest is crack the, sh- crack the champagne bottle on the bow, we're off and sailing. Again, so, one of the
0: things to note about Die Hard, thank you Sean, that was actually um, a very good synopsis of uh, how we got to Die Hard. Um, one of the things that I, I really want to draw this point out is when you look at uh, the, the, the the action movies, and the heroes, the action heroes of the 80s, um, they were the supermen. You know, Schwarzenegger's commando. You know, this was a, you know, beefed up guy, you know, with, you know, carrying heavy machine guns. And they could walk out into a field. You know, it's funny. I, I love my father to death. He, um, he's very aspy. Um, you know, Asperger's. And he's always one of these people who I think I've told this before on this show or certainly many others, you know, like I can't watch professional wrestling to this day. I'm 30 fucking seven years old to this day. I can't watch wrestling without him standing over my shoulder going, you know, that's not real, right? You know, G.I. Joe, a thousand rounds of laser ammunition. Nobody ever gets hit. You ever wonder about that, Mark? You know, things of that nature. So he would you know, we would watch these action movies and he would and he would watch them with me because he liked them too but he would always point out the absurdity in them that you have you know Arnold Schwarzenegger running through a field with a you know with a giant machine gun and he's being shot at by you know by a, an army full of guys and nobody hits him <laughs> you know but he can kill every single one of them you know, Rambo, for as much as we love that franchise, was another. I mean, we talked about this during the Rambo discussion, especially the third one, how absurd it was. You know, running through Afghanistan, killing everybody in sight. Nobody hits them. Um, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. So, and, one yet, of the-
1: yeah. <laughs> and yet, I fly Batman through a GCPD sniper's laser sight for a millisecond, and I'm going to end up getting popped and losing half my life bar to it. Thanks, Arkham Origins.
0: <laughs> so that's, I think, what made Die Hard an, an incredibly uh, great film in and in a breath of fresh air in, in the in the action world.
1: You know i i just want to I just want to point something out. Just to review something here for a second, we have a movie that started off being pitched as a sequel to a 1968 Frank Sinatra crime thriller. When that fell through they decided to rework it and turn a role made for Frank Sinatra into a sequel to an Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie. And ultimately, we ended up casting an ex-bartender in the title hero, in the heroic lead. We end up with a bona fide Christmas classic. Folks, right now, this is the equivalent to I end up I end up having to change a flat tire, I set my engine block on fire, and I end up having sex with Christina Hendricks.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's one of the things that Long Road to Ruin is known for is slamming Hollywood executives. They are the bane to my existence. They they are they are the evil that will ruin both Star Wars and uh, Batman versus Superman when they come out, and they will probably get around to eventually wrecking the Marvel universe. Um, no, that's that's mean. I should give them more credit for that. But no, no I, I, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: But we uh, we we tend to slam a lot of Hollywood execs, and that's because they, you know, it, it's the WWE mentality of look, you know, TNA, look, just go with Sting. It's what works. Okay, just go with whatever. Go what's worked a million times. It'll continue to work, tried and true, and. Very rarely do they ever kind of get outside of the box and and take risks and because there's a lot of money at stake. I've said this before a million times where where there is millions and millions of dollars at stake, they're not willing to take a tremendous amount of risk. The times that it has happened, there's been a, a glorious success and then a million copies of the same thing until something else happens. A lot of times it's the people with nothing to lose that take the risk and then they're bought up by the people with money after they've already proven themselves a success. So yeah, what, yeah. This,
1: very rude do they step outside the box, and very, very rarely do they ever fucking learn.
0: No, that, no, they do not. So that's one of the things that makes Die Hard really special. It was uh, made for $28 million and it made 140 on an untested uh, comedic actor and again former bartender. You know, they, they really they got lightning in a bottle. But this is also why we wanted to tackle the Die Hard franchise, not just because it's Christmas time and you want to do Christmas movies, as we all know Die Hard is. But also because it's, an, it's a great example of, a, of everything The Long Road to Ruin represents. How do you take a great idea and run it into the fucking ground until it, until it looks like a zombified corpse of what was once a, uh, a heroic thing? It's just, I mean, you want to talk about nosedive. <laughs> Robert Winfrey, God bless him, talked about other franchises we've done as a short road to ruin followed by a long fall off a, off a steep cliff. i can't think of a better way to describe the Die Hard franchise so let's get it let's get into the nitty-gritty of the first one here um what we have is and i and i want to stick with this point what we have here is a is a man not a superman not a super cop uh not a rock and roll detective thank you ford and andrew dice clay no he's not he's not any of those things he's just the dude and his wife um, got the job, uh, opportunity of a lifetime, and so she took the kids and she left. And he had a choice to follow her or stay behind. And because of his own internal issues, he chooses to stay behind. And the movie picks up where he has decided to visit them on Christmas, um, but he's got all of these feelings willing up inside of him. He's feeling betrayed by her and, and, um, and what's, what is a plot device. Also becomes one of those things that gives him depth. It gives it gives uh, John McClane character. It gives him um, something more than just a guy running around shooting guns. He's when the movie starts off. The first thing he realizes that his wife, that he's still married to, though though they are living on opposite ends of the country, has been using her maiden name. Bothers him. It's it's what causes the split. Um, and then in the next couple of scenes in the movie that separates them so that, you know, he can be so that he doesn't become one of the hostages. I think that's great. You very rarely. I mean, in a lot of movies, you see sort of what's become a trope, which is, you know, the dad that can't do anything right. Everybody hates him. <laughs> it's like it's, every dad in every and every movie is just the worst human being on the planet. I remember what was it? Um, not World War Z. I didn't see that, though. I've heard it's terrible. Um, War of the Worlds. You know, everybody is the Tom Cruise character, the dad who, who whose kids hate him. And you know, this, this was a this was a thing where they didn't really necessarily go there. Yes, he's got issues, but you know, he's not just the biggest screw up on the face of the planet. At least not in you this. Al-
1: movie. You also just described about half the sitcoms ever made, too.
0: You got the, you know, I joked on this show, and, and you kind of did a collar move where they were like, I don't know about that. I said, Hollywood hates women because all they see them for are boobs, just walking boobs. But, I, but, after, but you got to, there's, a, there's an element of Hollywood that hates men, too, apparently. Hollywood hates people. That's the conclusion no, I got. You, you and I, know what? Good by,
1: by all means, and anybody out there, I'm on Facebook right now. If you want to ping me, go right ahead. Feel free. Name me one long-running sitcom. And I single this out in particular because I think TV is almost worse about this than movies are. Go ahead and single me out one sitcom that is singled on a buffoonish idiot mother who can't do anything right. Go, go right ahead. I'm listening. The phones are open in the Fortress of Shawnitude. So go ahead. Let me know. Because quite frankly, I can't fucking think of one. But on the other hand, you take the opposite and you take a sitcom where the premise is we're just supposed to laugh at the fact that the loving husband and father who's just trying to do the best he can is nothing but a gibbering idiot who can't tie his shoes in the morning without his attractive, smart-alecky wife by all means, you know where do you want to begin? Do you want to run that list down alphabetically? I can also categorically tell you that was also <laughs> that also describes just about ten years of my longest relationship. So, <laughs> um, welcome to therapy I, I,
0: talk with with Dr. Mark and Sean. We're we're here to, te- to listen to your problems.
1: Well, but, but but quite honestly, I mean, it's it's a formula that gets a little bit tiresome, and the thing about this movie is everything about it almost everything about it even for as over at the over the top as it is it's somewhat relatable on a certain level
0: yes i and, mean he's as i said he's not the worst guy on the planet but he's got problems gee whiz yeah. don't we all um and, and that i guess that's the word i was looking for this is the, probably the most relatable at least in this movie this is the most relatable action hero you're probably ever going to see in your
1: life Well, well, exactly. And the fact is, a lot of the types of movies and shows that I just mentioned, obviously they play it up as being, oh, so cutesy and and so funny and everything ends on a freeze frame of everybody laughing at once. Uh, No, no. In real life, it's not nearly that cute. You know, nothing really is. And this is the movie wherein... It really would have been a completely different and less successful movie if a lot of the guys that I rattled off at the start of this podcast had been selected to play the lead. Uh, yeah, that's North- the thing. Like, like,
0: like Bruce Willis. I mean, people look at him now. He's, a bit, you know, not now, um, but you know, a couple of years ago, where he was built. You know, he's also been in like you know tons of action movies. So. like, like he has made himself an image where he looks like he could kick your ass in this movie. He doesn't, you know, and and that's the thing. If you look at some of these action heroes, they look like they walked out of the WWE. You know, they look like professional wrestlers. Now, granted Sylvester Stallone, as it turns out, is three feet tall, but he looks nine feet tall on screen. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's huge, you know, Clint Eastwood. Um, he's not a buff guy, but he also looks like he could eat your face. um, trying to think of some of these other, you know, a lot of the martial arts guys, obviously, in real life really could kick your ass. Um,
1: yeah. So, like, you know, it just kind of goes on like that. And then guys like that. Um, the brief, brief sidetrack, Jackie is messaging me. And sorry, Jackie, I'm not counting that because it's not a very long-running show. She's saying the closest I can think of is the new sitcom on CBS with Anna Faris and Allison Janney. Oh, um, Mom?
0: That started, like, last week.
1: Yeah. No, that hasn't been enough of a, enough of a success, really. So we we kind of can't count that one as what we're talking about. And
0: she's still uh, and, and the Anna Faris character is still smarter than the guy that than any of the men on that show that she's hooking up with. They're all, they're all either smarmy or idiots. She, you
1: know,
0: yes, I understand. I understand the Anna Faris character. I watch the show. I understand the Anna Faris character is somebody who you know the whole setup of the show is that she's sort of reconstructing her life after years of. Uh, Binge drinking and whoring, and she's still the smartest one on the show.
1: Sure, but but to get back to your point though, um, the it really does make this movie more of it gives more of a tense struggle for survival element because the fact is one of the big appeals of casting Arnold Schwarzenegger in your movies was yeah the fact that the authenticity that he looked like he could pull off a lot of the stuff that he was actually doing and could probably do it easily in a real life situation. That's just kind of a consequence of him being, you know, six feet plus, damn near 300 pounds of just raw Austrian corn-fed muscle. <laughs> corn-fed, yeah, go ahead and asterisk that, insert wellness joke here. <laughs> um, uh, Robert, quick, quick I, as... would, I, I would, I kind of count Reba. I'll give Robert trying to shoehorn re- Reba in there. That, yeah, that kind of works, I guess. But okay, one Reba and
0: Reba McIntyre, again she was it, the smartest yeah. woman on the show. Everybody else was a bumbling idiot,
1: which which is a fair point as well. But kind of kind of getting back a little bit though, I'm kind of re- I'm so going to regret. That I ever made that challenge to our <laughs> listeners.
0: <laughs> Welcome to TV <BB laughs> Talk with Mark and Sean. We'll be taking your calls and suggestions tonight.
1: Any, anyway, so the appeal of those movies, though, is, yeah, Schwarzenegger can do all this, but then he opens his mouth and sounds absolutely ridiculous. So <laughs> you've got, the, you've got the, the joy of it being shut your brain off and shut it off now over the top. But then you've got the fact that you could sit there and just shake your head at at some of Arnold's horrible line deliveries and everything except for Terminator.
0: Here's here's uh, a comparison I would draw. Bruce Willis is to the Die Hard franchise what Michael Keaton was to Batman. Michael, we talked about this when when um, we we talked about the Tim Burton Batmans. Michael Keaton was you know was the last person you would think of as Batman, and that's part of what made him work so well in that role was. You know, he looked like he could be Bruce Wayne. He didn't look like he could be Batman. And that's kind of what made it awesome was that he was a a very unassuming uh, character in this tough guy role. And so when you saw what he did, it became that much more exciting. And look, I want to make this – I say this on almost every show. Film is a visual medium. If what's on screen isn't interesting, you know, like, say, Jerry Lawler – but um, what is you know you know but what is interesting, Brock Lesnar, for example, um there are several people now listening to this, either throwing things around the room or you know whatever, but anyway, um you know if what if what's on screen is not visually interesting, you're losing your audience. this isn't radio, you know this isn't you know you, you've gotta you've gotta get people on screen that either through their eyes, through their body language through, you know, if you're George Lucas, through green screen on the screen and whatever, you know, computer graphics you can throw on there, if you're not capturing people's attention, your movie is shit. So you know, so what makes Bruce Willis work is that, you know, you have this guy, what made Michael Keaton work as Batman, um, was you had these guys that seemed out of place but were rising you know, to the level of their character. You know, they were stepping up. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about some of the elements of the first Die Hard movie before we get into. We, we must talk about Alan Rickman and all the things that are awesome about him.
1: Oh God, but, yes!
0: But um, there are elements that worked really, really well in Die Hard that were copy and pasted into every single movie after. And um,
1: never worked well.
0: Yeah, and, and it's it, it's a it's a case of the it's the more dinosaurs effect. We all know what More Dinosaurs is. It's the inability of anyone working on a project to know why anything works, but they just keep doing it anyway. Um, and they do more of it. So that is one of the things that was really interesting about this first Die Hard movie is if you consider the plot line, and I'm going to quickly go through what the plot line of this thing is, and it's fairly simple. Terrorists take over uh, a corporation's um, skyscraper. Uh, they make crazy demands, but it's all, a, it's all subterfuge. It's all uh, a red herring to what their real um, plot is, and that is to rob the place. Um, I don't remember what it, quite, what it is that they're stealing, and it's, it's papers of some sort. I was doing laundry while I was re-watching this. But, um, <laughs> but uh, they're there to steal, basically. And there's a great line by Alan Rickman. He's like, that's it. That's all this was. You're just a common thief. And he jumps, you know, like for the first time, he shows emotion. And he just jumps at her. And he says, I am an exceptional thief. Bear <laughs> bonds. Thank, thank you, Robert Winfrey, who was our silent producer tonight. <laughs> um, so, yes, they, they, they were there to steal bear bonds. And, uh, but that's not what they told anybody. So they set up this big ruse, this big misdirection so that they would have enough time and space to commit this robbery and then get away. You know, and, they, and they make demands such as, um, we want helicopters, but what they're really going to do is blow the roof off the place, kill the hostages, and make it look like they died in the wreckage while they scoot away in a van. This element of misdirection is present in the next Die Hard movie, and in the third one and uh, the fourth one, I believe, and I haven't watched the fifth one yet, but I'm sure it's there too. It was like they couldn't do a Die Hard movie without a giant misdirection. To the point where in the third one, they even, you know, the villain is the, the villain from the first one's brother. You know, <laughs> like, like you see, we've got to do another Die Hard movie. What's going to be the misdirection this time? You know, it's... The the lesson you learn from watching Die Hard movies is nobody but your local police, uh, um, your local police officers are trustworthy. Everyone's out to fuck you in some way. Um, But it but the first time you see it in the original Die Hard, it's actually effective because they they spend a lot of time. First of all, these are German, um, European uh, terrorists, and they spend a lot of time playing up that element and he spent, and Alan Rickman's character spends a lot of time talking up the fact that, you know, they serve a higher purpose. You know, they serve, a, they're serving a greater good. This is a political movement. And the cops are right there with them. You know, the, the, the cops who are is incompetent in this movie as the day is long and the FBI just is incompetent. Um, you know, are like, oh, well, this is obviously about some kind of demands, And we're here, you know, we're we're going to meet those demands and we're going to get through this and save the hostages. And, you know, and then the film violently jerks the other way, and ta-da, it's a heist movie. So there you there, you have it.
1: Um, oh, come on. You, you have to make the exception and point out that Reginald Bell Johnson is definitely with it.
0: Oh, no, sure. And, and it's his best work since Family Matters.
1: Carl Winslow got this shit.
0: <laughs> I will I, – I, we, we have to talk about the relationship between those two characters because um, – you know, we often don't we often don't see this in modern film, but you know, there are there are scenes between uh, John McClane and uh, and Winslow. That's not, not his character's name. Um,
1: <laughs> Sergeant Al Powell.
0: That's right, Sergeant Al Powell. Al, Al, you there? Um, that where the film actually takes a break. So you have these moments in the film where 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 the film just kind of goes on pause for a little bit, and there and it takes and it gives you time to kind of breathe and Watch a relationship develop between two total strangers, which is another element that you don't get to see a lot in modern film these days is um
1: peace and fucking quiet
0: <laughs> I was also going to say relationships between characters it's everyone sort of just playing a hackneyed role and kind of you know and it's it's kind of filler to get to the action sequence as opposed to what an action movie should be, which is a film about people in which exciting stuff happens. And I'll say that again.
1: But but really, that's the thing. I swear to God, movie executives do not watch action movies as fans and really appreciate what's going on. They don't appreciate the fact, and I noticed this when I was watching Die Hard 2, and it's a big reason why I enjoyed it so much less, is the fact that the action has to punctuate something. You have, you have development, you have something that rises and progresses and either comes together or falls apart, in many cases, one right after the other. But then you have something explosive, pardon the pun, sometimes it's very literal, that manages to put a capstone on that, and then you're given a little bit of time to catch your breath and let the next thing develop. Because really, as is so often the case in these things, no, it's not necessarily one big explosion or one big firefight immediately after the other. Sometimes a situation has to deteriorate into the firefight. It has to go somewhere somewhere to really get to that. Otherwise, everything just feels hollow. It just feels like blowing shit up for the sake of blowing shit up. And that's what happens in Die Hard 2 is it's just constantly, nonstop, just constant people yelling at each other, constant people cursing each other out, calling each other assholes. Things blowing up, gunfight, explosions, more people calling each other assholes, more explosions, more gunfights, John McClane flying up in the air in an ejector seat, more explosions, more gunfights, more assholes, so on, so on, so on, and that's it. I, I've always hated that action movie movie line, it's a non-stop thrill-a-minute ride that will leave you breathless. That's not necessarily what I want. <laughs> Nor is that really a good
0: thing. Here, this movie will move so fast and be so loud and so packed full of shit, you won't know it's terrible.
1: No, I... And I I, I I I wish
0: that was someone's marketing
1: campaign. I I mean, when, when I watch it, I want some time to actually kind of absorb the situation for a moment and kind of lean forward in my seat and wonder... Okay, how is McLean going to get out of this one? I know he's going to get out of it. I'm just genuinely intrigued to see how he's going to do it.
0: There's a joke in, um, I believe it's Clerks 2, about uh, about Lord of the Rings, and you know, the, I believe it's the um, the Randall character who's like all that movie is a bunch of walking. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I know I understand the criticism. It's, so, it's yeah. sort of ridiculous and simple. Um, but I think that it, I think it's meant to be, especially when that character says it. But I've heard other people say it too. It was like, wow, that, I, I'll never forget going to see um, Fellowship of the Ring opening night, and uh, you know, someone who did not know that this was a trilogy uh, got up and said as the movie ended, "That's it, it's over, that's all." Does he get rid of the ring? And you know, us nerds uh, we're picking, we're slowly you know drawing out long swords, but. Um, <laughs> I, be- I believe she narrowly got hit with an arrow in any case um, but, you know, but what, what people sometimes fail to realize about the Lord of the Rings movies is that it was not simply about a midget throwing a ring in a, you know, in a, in a volcano uh, and, and the journey it takes to get him there it was about people these people's way of lives was completely being turned on its head it, in many cases it was coming to an end what made the hobbits what they were in those movies was the fact that their their livelihood was at their their um their lives was at the lives of the hobbits at large were at risk and many of them didn't even know it they were oblivious what they were fighting for was a, was a was an opportunity to save their civilization and so you don't get any of that unless you get to know them as people the film you know shows you these long walks and these long stretches of dialogue i think somebody uh, i don't remember where i heard this recently but somebody said you know peter jackson uh, is uh, a lot of filler in between you know long drawn out fight scenes it's like it's not filler it's filler if there's absolutely no develop you know no character development but there's absolutely character development going on in Lord of the Rings. There's relationship building. They're, you know, they're letting you in on the fact that their world is coming to an end and they're, they're grasping at straws to save it. So to take this back to Die Hard, at least in the first movie, these bits of dialogue between Bruce Willis and uh, Reginald Val Johnson are an opportunity to kind of get inside the head of our hero. And I and I want to liken this back to you know our talks about professional wrestling and such. If you don't care about the quote unquote the face, the hero, if you don't care, if you if you have no attachment to him, he's you know he's just being pitched to you as the good guy. But you have no sentimental attachment to him. You don't know anything about him. He's just there. Then why do you care what happens to him? You know, if he's being beaten up on Raw every single week. You know, and then they're like, "All right, buy the pay-per-view, and you can, you know, so that you can see him finally uh, get revenge on the bad guy." Well, why bother? Why do I care? And mm-hmm. too often in these, um, too often in a lot of the action movies, you know, as we were saying, is the movie, films move so fast, they're so packed full of things, you never get to know them as people. They're, they're tropes. You know, again, everyone will start every 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 action hero will start off as some sort of fuck up dad. <laughs> and, and, and because he saved a bunch of people he will be redeemed in some way he saved his children from a train going off a cliff somehow and, you know, and suddenly that will suddenly make him better it isn't the trip that you take with John McLean as he realizes I'm a shitty husband I should have supported my wife when she got the opportunity of a lifetime instead of being selfish there's a great monologue he gives towards the end where he says I don't think I'm going to live through this and if I don't, please tell my wife the following. And he goes into all this. And, and, the, thing, and the thing of it is, is that that was a natural progression of the conversations that they had been having throughout the movie. Because Reginald L. Johnson doesn't do anything. <laughs> he's, just, he's just kind of there. You know? and, and he's um, supporting John McLean through this whole thing when nobody's willing to give him a chance and listen to him. So, but even Reginald L. Johnson, for the little bit that he does in the movie, has an arc of some kind. You know, they set it up with the reason why he's uh, jockeying a desk and, you know, and that he's not on the street anymore is because he shot an unarmed kid by accident. By accident. No.
1: I just, and I just realized. And
0: then at at the end of the movie, he shoots the bad guy. You know, he redeems
1: himself. And I just realized who it is that Reginald and Bruce remind me of. Uh, Uh, Are you familiar with a movie? And it's it's not one that I think a lot of people will necessarily know. Um, uh, A Vietnam a Vietnam War survival movie called Bat Twenty One.
0: I have not seen this movie.
1: Okay, it's one of it's one of my dad's all time favorite movies, and I watched it growing up, and it was very easy for me to see why it was his favorite because it's a very simple story of Gene Hackman, who is um, an American Vietnam War pilot who is shot down over the jungle. And Danny Glover, I'm pretty sure it's Danny Glover, just about positive Danny Glover, um, plays the rescue helicopter pilot who's got to find some kind of safe way to extract him to get him out. And a lot of the movie is just radio conversations between the two of them as they're not only trying to work things out, but as they're kind of as they're kind of bonding, as Glover is sort of trying to keep Hackman's spirits up throughout this seemingly impossible ordeal. That's causing them to have to improvise a lot as they're going along. And I've been trying to put my finger. Ever since I watched it last night, I started thinking, you know, the, the rapport between these two, it reminds me of something. What does it remind me of? And that just now came to me. And it really makes me want to go <laughs> want to go track down somehow. I don't even know if it's on DVD, a DVD copy of it, and and watch that and kind of relive that. Because it's two guys who really... It's not like they can even going to play off each other face to face necessarily. But for those brief radio conversations, it actually really works. You know, you, um, you, kind of, you, kind of, you kind of, as you're watching it, you kind of start to feel bad that after this movie, Reginald Bell Johnson was regulated to being the bumbling fat straight man to fucking Steve Urkel. <laughs>
0: Um, one of the things that's great about this movie is everybody plays a role. Um, everybody has something to do. You know, the women are not just do nothing. You know, they're to be saved by the hero. Um, in this particular case, we're talking about Bonnie Bedelia, who plays Holly Janeiro McLean, um, who is the wife. You know, she she has an arc. You know, it, it, she has something to do in the film. She ends up becoming um, once they figure out who she is. She 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 ends up being taken by the um the terrorists and the you know the bank robbers essentially, and you know they they take her as sort of a shield because now they realize that you know she's married to the guy that's been shooting up the other terrorists and um you know and so she she has stuff to do in this she isn't just being dragged along you know she uh when they realize that the reporter who's played by um william uh, Atherton. Uh, Richard Thornburg is the character when Richard Thornburg goes to their house and you know and, and interviews the children almost by force uh, you know, and exposes them to d- potential danger that isn't just left out there you know it's not in the film unnecessarily uh, it, it, you know it, it's another it's another possible element of danger doesn't really go anywhere but at the end of it she punches them in the face. <laughs> she she gets to do something, um, which is something you don't, you don't see in a lot of these movies is, you know, the women are just there to provide cleavage, and they're not really, you know, and sc- cleavage and screams, that's all they're good for, and then that's it, they don't do anything. Um, she absolutely had a role to play. Uh, even the limo driver, you know, who who you know started off our film by playing Christmas and Hollis, one of the greatest Christmas songs of all time, next to I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas, and uh, I'm Getting nothing for Christmas. Um, I can tell you where my head is at during Christmas time Um, (laughs) so you know even the limo driver gets something to do I mean he's you know he's just uh, he's he's just hanging out there waiting for John McClane to call him and when he finally figures out what's going on he you know he acts quickly and he prevents the getaway uh, he he prevents them from using the getaway car which is great you know they just gave him that one thing to do and he he, doesn't and it's great it was like a it was a cheer moment in the film
1: Rarely, rarely does somebody who gets so little screen time in a movie end up somehow making the most of it and becoming so damn likable as Argyle.
0: Yeah, no, he was great. Um, And even people who you know who end up becoming bad in this thing. Now, I've said in the the, the subsequent Die Hard movies, you're always going to have the one guy who you know you have the you have the big swerve, and then you have the betrayer. They're in every movie. (laughs) There's always one guy who's just like, I'm not really on your side. Um, and so in this one, it isn't as hackneyed as the next movie, as, as as Die Hard two. In this one, he was actually trying, trying to stop the problem. You know, he wasn't giving up. Um, and this, this is the uh, the character played by um, uh, Hart Bachner. He plays Harry Ellis, and you know he's got a thing for the for the woman, but he doesn't really, you know, doesn't. There's not time in the film to sort him of really, you know, really trying to do anything with it. Um, just as soon as they've introduced that element, they're dealing with a terrorist at that point. Um, but he, uh, you know, he said the line in the movie, like, oh, I don't want to wait around for either the terrorist to kill us or your husband. So I'm going to go do something about it. And while his means of doing something about it are not particularly heroic, he meant well, you know, and, and, and when he could have made it so much worse, he actually holds back because he's trying to actually end the crisis. He's not trying to get anyone, anybody killed. And then he gets himself killed. So there you have it. But, you know, it's, uh, it's a steady stream of people with stuff to do in the film. The last thing you want to do is write a movie where you introduce a bunch of people doing nothing. And it drives me crazy, and you see it a lot. And this is why, you know, like, why is Die Hard perfect? Well, because it hits all of these things well. It, it, does, it has all of these elements that are well played on the screen and handled uh, appropriately. And that's all I can ask for, and that's why and that's why I'm spending so much time on this. We spent, you know almost an hour talking about this one movie. Um, Alan Rickman is awesome. Your thoughts, sir?
1: What the hell do you say about this performance that hasn't already been said? And you know, really, what what best proves just how just how adept he was at at putting so much into this so subtly is the fact that if you look at every other villain throughout this franchise, nobody is really as engaging a villain as he is, and you can never quite put your finger on why. And it's because he's one of Hollywood's great natural villain actors. He does it, he does it with presence. He does it with intonation. He does it with subtlety. He's not mustache twirly. God freaking knows... Unlike the villain in the villain in uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, he doesn't have to give himself a stupid fucking name and gimmick.
0: <laughs> Simon just, says. <laughs> Simon says you. antagonize a gang of a gang of, of Harlem uh, gang members.
1: Uh, he just uh, he, he's brilliant because of my my favorite scene in the movie, and he he just plays so well, seemingly, off of whoever he's on screen with. My very favorite scene in the entire movie is when Gruber goes out to check on all the explosives, and he happens to run into McClane. And they pretty quickly figure out who they're each face to face with. And he's just doing his damnedest. He's doing his very best to play himself off (laughs) Not only as being innocent, but as being an American,
0: right? With the awful accent and and all, and that's it, and, and the thing of it was instead of like instead of realizing where he was and doing the old so lone star, this is <laughs> we meet for the first time for the last time. You're right. He actually tries to like play. He actually tries to use his wits and get through and the situation.
1: Know, and you know what? God help me, it manages to be. Both amusing and tense at the same time.
0: I told you I was doing laundry during while I was watching the movie, and I, I turned away and I turned back and I see and I see this sort of you know that that old Vince McMahon, my whole world has come apart look on his face, and <laughs> you know as he realizes who it was, and that and I swear to God, Sean, i it took me a few minutes. I didn't realize who it was. That's how his face was contorted. I was like, wait, is that? I don't. Who is that? Is that one of the terrorists?
1: Oh my God! That's Alan Rickman. And, and no, that, 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 that's a good way to describe it. That that, that Vince McMahon, my son is who. <laughs> just, just. My son,
0: my son just bought what? <laughs> what? What do you mean you bought WCW? You
1: bastard. <laughs> I apologize. I'm kind of sorry, not sorry, for those of you out there who are not wrestling fans and don't realize that which we're referencing. But you know what? If you weren't there at that time, you simply can't appreciate it. You can go YouTube it all you want to. There was just yeah. nothing quite. There's just nothing quite like those two. Those two moments of of Vince McMahon realizing that his son storyline-wise, of course was Finley's midget, and before that, that his, for real son, Shane McMahon, had bought his, the competing second biggest wrestling promotion in North America right out from under him. <laughs> it looked like his head had cracked in half. Well, well, well yeah, and, and it's good that you brought that up, because he does that expression so well yeah, yeah he, does. He, he he does that you'll have to excuse me, I just shit myself look um
0: Vince McMahon is a terrible wrestling promoter he isn't but he emotes really
1: well shockingly well um yeah. he he's a you know he he's a visionary he's a visionary businessman, and i think we were all shocked by that just because of what a horrible announcer he was um i mean he was legendarily bad as an announcer, but, <laughs> you know, much like, but, but much like Rickman, when you put him in these situations where he has to convey that, he does it with just this, uh, this ideal timing, this, this, this just perfect, this perfect metamorphosis of his face, just falling into that expression. Yeah. Um, yeah, oh, the other one I can think of. Um, Vince, uh, Vince in the hospital, and he realizes that mankind has come to visit him.
0: I was going to say, you know, uh, when he asked the nurse a question, and still called Steve Austin who turns around, and there's the, and right before he gets cracked in the head with the bedpan, there's that look of absolute terror. Just, yeah, just pants exactly. shitting terror.
1: Exactly. What, but what makes it all the more impressive with Rickman is the fact that he's such, he's such an outstanding, classically trained actor. And the thing with a lot of actors with his pedigree that you kind of neglect is you're so used to seeing them have to play things subtle and nuanced and dramatic and being very real. Right.
0: You Which is why when he it? says things like, I'm an exceptional thief it's a fun moment because he wasn't like that through any other part of the movie.
1: I guess, yes, exactly. I mean, you take somebody like Rickman or John Malkovich or David Tennant, people who are actually exceptionally skilled actors. And you find out that really you kind of get the biggest sense of just how talented they really are. When, you see them have to shift into that rarely used higher gear. And sometimes it is when you have to play things up for comedy a little bit. Uh, I mean, for Rickman, drama obviously obviously comes very easy. He, he's very droll. He's very dry in his delivery so many times. I think by now we've all seen all eight Harry Potter movies. We've seen Dogma. Um, some of us endured The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But then you see you see a moment like that, and all and, and all of a sudden you realize you're supposed to be very very tense and very concerned because oh my God John McClane is right there with the movie's big bad the man who wants who wants him dead, and yet you're so distracted by by Hans fucking Gruber telling him my name's Clay Bill Clay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Please don't
1: kill me, sir. And just he—he's almost got—he almost got this look in his eyes, like he's not quite sure that McLean is buying it. Yeah,
0: that—that—that so, that, that uh, is the there's a there's a great tension in that scene because as an audience member, you're, you're like, does he know that that's the bad guy? Is he is he falling for this? Am I falling for this? Do I, I don't do. What do I? What's happening here? You know, and it's it's great. It's it's what makes that a very fun scene is you really don't know who knows what in that scene, and when it's all going to, you know, and then it builds to a crescendo where, you know, where you, where you, where you realize, okay, the jig is up here and some shit's about to go down. But the, the trip to get there was a lot of fun. And again, you know, just kind of beat this point into the ground. It, they don't do it enough in, in modern movies today. Everything is, oh, it, it's just more dinosaurs. It's just blow a lot of stuff up on the screen. Um, you know, fight, 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 fight. You know, and more fighting. It's you know, as much as I enjoyed it visually. A lot of people have made much hay out of the Revenge of the Sith lightsaber scene because it went on forever. It was gratuitous. Um, you know, you 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 just it was two guys sma- you know smashing each other with sticks for who knows what reason, and you know well, there's no geez. tension in that scene.
1: Gee, if that's not a
0: segue for us to talk about Die Harder. Okay. Um I just want to make sure that we uh, we covered everything with Die Hard before, because I do want to move on to Die Hard Two and then of course Die Hard with a Vengeance. So I, um but uh is there anybody else is there anything else that I wanted to mention here? I talked about the wife, talked about Alan Rickman, talked about Reginald Bell Johnson, Limo Driver, um
1: you know, just uh, Oh, oh, oh. I, I got one more I'd like to throw in here. Go ahead. And, and because this, Because this is something that you don't get as much out of any of the other movies.
0: Oh, hang on, is, hang on. I, I just had it, so I'm going to let you go, but get me back to being a detective. Just don't, don't let me forget being a detective. Go.
1: Okay, I'll get to that in a second. But we have to mention the brilliance of the late Michael Kamen score. Um. Not just in the fact that he's weaving such such unlikely, seemingly anachronistic music in certain scenes. Like, like, I swear, I just beam in amusement every time I come to the scene when Gruber's crew finally gets into the vault. And they're playing, I think it's, God, I want to say it's the thieving magpie. Um, no, that doesn't sound right. I don't know what the piece is that's playing as they're opening up the vault and they're just beaming as they're opening up the cases and seeing all the bear bonds. This is this happy, joyous music that you expect to hear in the hero's triumphant moment. And here, we're hearing it as the terrorists are starting to pack up their loot. It, <laughs> it, it, it's such hysterical, Hysterical, absolutely hilarious timing. Um, the best comparisons that, that I can that I can make are number one, if anybody out there has ever seen the uh Thomas Jane Punisher movie.
0: And it was in the, Tampa. the... what is that? It was filmed in Tampa.
1: Yeah, yes it was. We're all very um, proud of the,
0: that. That that and um the stripper movie, Magic Mike.
1: You're really that proud of Magic Mike?
0: I'm not proud of anything, but apparently if you live in Tampa, you're supposed to be proud of Magic Mike and the Punisher. It's a big claim to fame, that
1: and meth. Magic Mike. Cock the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, no, the, the scene in The Punisher when Frank Castle and the Russian are beating each other pillar to post around a hallway. And, again, I forget what the name of the piece is called. This this gorgeous operatic music that's playing in the background. Um, But the other comparison I would make is actually to a video game that the producers said was was influenced and scored by Die Hard, and that's Batman Arkham Origins. Um, And you know what? I just realized where I got thieving magpie is because there's a similar scene in Origins in which... Spoiler, for those of you who haven't played the game yet, um, Bane reaches his fist through an elevator and grabs Batman and starts flinging him around a hallway as as the thieving magpie plays, and it keeps playing right up to a confrontation with the Joker, in which the Joker blows up a fucking skyscraper that's seen out a window (laughs) and just keeps playing and playing and playing.
0: But I was actually the... thinking of Clockwork Orange. Your, your talk of sort of, you know, if, um, interesting scores to um, really odd visuals. I always remember the end of A Clockwork Orange where they're playing um, you know, classical music as he's in a menage a with the two women. After being tortured mentally and physically for two hours, he, you know, he breaks free and he goes back to committing all sorts of manner of sin.
1: Sure.
0: Then, of course... Then, of course, I think it's the rape scene where they also do singing in the rain, correct? Um, They beat the shit out of the guy and they rape the woman, To I want to say it's singing in the rain. Or maybe they just beat the shit out of one guy in the alley to singing in the rain. That's what I'm remembering.
1: Sounds about right. But but either way, in both cases, in both Arkham Origins and in Die Hard, of course, you've got this mix of orchestral Christmas music that's combined with some of the... um, some of the original touches of Michael Kamen's score. And both of them really create this, this unique atmosphere that you don't get in all of the other movies because everyone after that neglects that element and everything just becomes a big, bombastic orchestral score throughout the entire, the entire thing. You don't even get very much tension building music. It's just the music is suddenly loud. It feels like it's trying to compete with what's going on on screen instead of kind of coloring it instead of accenting it instead of bringing it out a little bit more. Um, it's it's something that really gets kind of gets kind of put by the put by the wayside, and it's it's a shame because. Cayman, this uh, this to me was his masterwork as far as composition goes, um, because it's it's so beautiful to listen to, and so and so much so much fun and so exhilarating. Compared with, or sometimes even just you know in addition to, whatever is blowing up or getting shot on screen.
0: Um, I want to, the last point on this, because it does filter into the other movies, Um, much like the misdirection and the betrayer, there is one of the elements of John McClane, the character that I think is very valuable, another comparison to Batman. Why do we love Batman? It isn't because of the gravelly voice and the utility belt and the ninja ass kicking that he does. The thing, the reason why we love Batman is... Uh, The the same reason we love John McClane. It was his attention to detail and his ability to use uh, his professional detection skills. He is the only person in the movie who, and and they, they make note of this in the second movie and in the third movie, he's noticing things that everyone else seems to miss. He's putting together pieces of a, you know... <laughs> There's a really funny thing that uh, that they do in the um, re- in the Mr. Plinkett reviews of Star Wars, where uh, he says something. It's like it's like somebody took a bunch of puzzles and threw them in the air and said, you know, and then said, put these back together in the next in the next minute or you'll die. And then they actually show him doing it, which is which is amusing. Um, but it but it's that kind of a thing where he's just got you know he's just given a bunch of you know jagged pieces of who knows what and he's trying to figure out how they all fit together. And that's the fun of watching him. You know, many times in, wa- in watching an action movie, the fun isn't necessarily in watching the gigantic explosions or the, you know, elongated fight scenes. It's watching the hero take, you know, disparate pieces of this and that and putting it together in a way that, you know, you, the UV audience, would have never have thought of. Um, you know, too many times i you know talked to people like, oh, I saw that coming. Oh, boy, I knew that was going to happen. Yep, I knew that guy was going to turn. I was just sitting here waiting for it. One of the things that drove me, one of the things that drove me nuts with Into Darkness, was, was was that was there was no surprises in that thing. It was like, you know, Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm like, I just every step of the way, I'm like, uh huh, uh huh, and there's that, and uh, wow, that was from Wrath of Khan, and that too. And hey, why is this a Wrath of Khan cover song? Um, it, you know, it's nice to actually see the hero that you're that you're investing all this time in and watching on screen actually do something heroic, uh, besides something physical using his brain. You know, he's not, he's not just, he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not just muscle, you know, bashing through walls and, and such. He's, you know, taking elements around him and figuring things out and then deciding, you know, what he's going to do next based on that information. Again, that's why we love Batman because that's what Batman would do. Batman took all of these different pieces of information and figured out, that's the Riddler's plan. Got it. We're good to go now. Um, so, it's one of the few things they do in all of these movies that I'm glad they kept doing. You know, I, I've I complained before that there are certain things that are that that, that are in these Die Hard movies that drive me crazy because they're just shoehorned in there because they need to be there, but they don't really fit. Um, but at least they kept his character consistent. And by the time they get to three, it's consistently bad. But that we'll get there in a few minutes. Let's talk about two. <laughs> so, at the very least, this one takes place on Christmas Eve once again um die hard two die harder uh and the names just get progressively silly as these movies continue um let's see here die hard two there we go normally have this stuff normally have this stuff uh worked out ahead of time comes out two years later so two years later we are at the sequel it's a 70 million dollar movie and it makes $240 million at the box office. So it's, it's big-time stuff here. Uh, the wife returns. Um, the reporter returns. John McClane returns. Is, you know Bruce Willis. And um, we, have a, we have a brief appearance by Reginald VelJohnson, Johnson, though he isn't, he isn't a main part of the film. And then after that, we get, a, we get a whole host of new characters. We have Sipowitz minus the ass, which is fantastic. You know, good old Dennis Franz. Who has oh, really
1: one fantastic?
0: <laughs> no. I I have some serious issues with the Dennis Franz character. We'll we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um we got uh we Fred Thompson uh who uh, who has one look in this entire movie. Literally does not change his expression the entire time. <laughs> we've, no. we've got Tom Bauer as Mob in the janitor. He's fantastic. We have Sheila McCarthy, who has a very odd-looking face, um, as the annoying reporter. Calm Meany, who has a brief appearance as a, <laughs> as a as a British air pilot, who uh, plane, the plane goes down. Let's see. some of our villains here. We have Franco Nero as General Ramon Esperanza, who is who the whole movie centers around. William Sadler is, is our Alan Rickman. And a poor man's Alan Rickman at that, plays Colonel Stewart.
1: God, stunningly poor.
0: Yeah, um, John Leguizamo apparently was in this. I don't even remember him. That's
1: no kidding, who was he?
0: He was Burke. Was he really? Yeah,
1: according to this. That was Leg. That was Leguizamo. That annoying little popcorn fart.
0: Uh, according to Wikipedia, yes. Um, and Robert Costanzo is Sergeant Vito Lorenzo, who is uh, play, who is Dennis Franz's brother in this thing. So this place, this now, Die Hard, the original movie, takes place in a skyscraper. That's it. That's the movie. Uh, this one is an airport, and uh, it was an interesting way of uh, of sort of doing the same thing. Was like let's have the hero enclosed in a certain area. He doesn't ever leave that area, and we're gonna have him you know, in different parts of this thing, you know, just explore it thoroughly, you know, setting plays a huge role in these diehard movies. So, you know, they took this, they, they they took the concept of what happens if we show you an airport in 4D, all the elements of an airport, you know, the, you know, the tower, the, uh, the, you know, the area where all the, where all the, um, people traveling would, would go, uh, the, um, the hangar, the runway, all of it let's show you the ins and outs of this airport, so setting wise visually it's interesting because it's not a that's not a place many people are you know we all go to airports, those of us that fly, but you don't get into all these other areas. you certainly don't go into the tower so in that way, it was at least a fun visual it was fun visually. you got to see something you don't normally get to see as as, as an audience member unless you of course work in an airport. Um, the plot of this thing. Is that they you know they are there's a group of mercenaries soldiers I guess who are attempting to um, save rescue um, General Ramon Esperanza who apparently is a ruthless drug lord and dictator of the fictional country Valverde. Why don't they just say Colombia? I don't really understand that, but.
1: See, I, I find it interesting that you really like the airport setting to so the airport setting was one of my okay. big problems with it.
0: Okay, let's talk about that then. So I just, I just kind of described why I found it interesting. What's your issue with the airport?
1: Okay. And I get why some people, I get why exactly as you pointed out, why some people would find that especially interesting because there's things about that They kind of lend themselves to a certain idea of raising the stakes on the movie. You've got more people involved this time. You've got a bigger area, so the cat and mouse game gets a little bit trickier. You've, You've theoretically got, well, not to be redundant, but with the stakes higher, you've got more at stake. Yes, I know, repetitive thing is repetitive. However... To me, it almost feels like too much space because what I tend to find much more interesting when I watch an action movie is I really tend to prefer movies where everything takes place in a more confined space because it makes everything seem a little more desperate. It it makes every gambit seem a little bit trickier because you've really got nowhere... That you can run and hide. There's more of a sense of immediacy.
0: This isn't the Bourne movies where you're going on a uh, a tour of Europe.
1: Well, yes, exactly, and also sometimes less is more. In the first movie, you've got one man against twelve terrorists, Angels. and they're yes, and, and they're all locked up in the space of one massive skyscraper the Nakatomi building. In this one, you've got one man and the air traffic controllers and airport security and the fucking military (laughs) all all against the terrorists in a much bigger area where everybody's got more room to maneuver. It's just not as thrilling. It's not as tense to me, and that leads me to another problem. The fact that there's so much time where everybody has room to regroup. There's so much strategizing among so many people that really, you almost have to have the whole stupid betrayal plot twist in die harder because otherwise there's nothing else that's really tense about it. There, there's nothing else that really has that air of desperation. I don't
0: it's, know. It's, I, I... There's a scene later on in the movie where he fails to save the British jet, uh, the British airliner, um, that I think gives sufficient pause in the movie and, a, you know, a bit of uh, dramatic tension. You know, the hero didn't save the day. And as a matter of fact, he, he was largely useless. Th- despite all of his efforts, he saved absolutely nobody. And it, it, uh, it kills him. And it gives, it gives a lot more tension later on to the, to the conclusion of the film as he's already lost one plane and was able to do nothing about it. He knows that his wife's going down any minute now, and, you know, and he doesn't want to lose his wife. You know, I, it, I want to mention this now just because it's going to come up again in the third movie. Um, they're fine in this movie. <laughs> he loves his wife still. They're, they're visiting their in-laws. She's flying back from a meeting. Nothing is wrong with their marriage. This is two years later after a terrible incident. Although I, it's two years um, since the last one came out. I think it's only one year later uh, in the in the films universe. But you know their marriage stronger, strong as ever. He has moved to Los Angeles and become an L.A. detective so that he can be yep. with his family. Keep that in mind when we talk about the third one.
1: Yeah. But I mean, and, and like I said, I know that reasonable, reasonable people can differ. Um, the stakes having changed in this one, for some people, that's that's going to make it much more thrilling. That's going to make it much more intriguing. Me though, I, I happen to like my simplicity. I like that everything, I like that everything took place in the space of that one building. It's kind of for the same reasons that I liked the. Um, the second try at making a Judge Dredd movie was because everything, it it feels a little more natural rather than spacing everything out quite so much. Uh, Okay. Um, And and, and like I said, it's it's not something I'm going to say I I necessarily found wrong in in kind of an objective sense, but just my preference, my preference is it made it a
0: little harder for me to stay interested. Like I said, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I understand what you're, say, what you're saying about, you know, when you confine the hero to, you know, only a few settings, um, it sort of increases the tension by virtue of claustrophobia. Um, and this one, yes, the universe is a little bit bigger, but he never leaves the airport. You know, he's. I, I think they only go as far as the church where the bad guys are. And that's it. He's right, and then he's right back in the airport again. You know, they aren't chasing. This isn't Die Hard three where, where it's tour of New York City. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> enjoy your tour of Manhattan, kids. It's it's going to be a bumpy ride. Um, and, and then I think the next one is a tour of D.C. and then we go to Russia because you know because that's the natural you know progression. So, you know, city, country. Anywho, um, yeah, so. So like I said, the plot of this thing is they're flying in this uh South American drug lord. I'll tell you one of the one of the it was a very small issue, but this was I felt like there was there was a veiled message about the war on drugs. Like we've won the battle but we're losing the war. This is nineteen ninety, okay? <laughs> and people are like, Yeah, the drug war, terrible waste of money and it is, but that's not the point of the show. Um But I it was like Please keep your politics out of my action movie. For God's sakes, I don't need to be lectured on the drug war when I want to watch John McClane shoot bad guys and get pulled glass out of his feet A crying out You know
1: what, It seemed like about half the action movies made during that period were about drug lords and the DEA agents who hunt them. Yes. Or the FBI agents, or the cops, or who the hell ever.
0: Yeah, thank God for 911 because, you know, then we finally had a fresh crop of new bad guys, you know, white American fat cats. That's what we're talking about. I'm just making lots of jokes here. Um are You still with me, Sean? Yeah, I'm still with
1: you. I'm just listening.
0: As okay. <laughs> You're just stepping slowly away from me going, "Okay, wherever it is you're going, I ain't
1: following." Um <laughs> Are you kidding kidding me? Adding more of this shit about boo, evil, bad, greedy, fat cats. Hey, you know, that might have actually made Arrow a show about, you know, green fucking Arrow.
0: Anywho. So, yeah, so they're, they're, they're transporting this drug lord. They're extraditing him back to the country, and the soldiers are trying to rescue him. And so they essentially... So the hostages in this case are a bunch of airlines. They essentially take the entire airport over and they make it so that none of the planes can land. And the, the, the demand here is that you provide one landing, uh, you provide one runway for this particular plane, and then you provide another plane so they can all get away. And that's it. That's, that's, the, that's the plot of this thing. Um, there's a time limit. Eventually planes will start to crash. They will run out of fuel and they will die. So um, there's, a, there's an incentive on the heroes to work as fast as possible to try to restore um, control back to the airline. Uh, the terrorists have, again, like, hacked into things, and they've got control over everything. And so uh, I want to start off with some of the pacing of the movie. It starts right off with, with John McClane picking up um, his wife from the airport. She's, uh, she's flying back in from, I think, Japan or wherever it was she was flying in from. Um, and they are in, uh, DC and immediately it, it picks up with the car being towed and, you know, and he runs into this cop who, you know, big Italian schmuck cop. Hey, I don't care that it's Christmas. Go fuck yourself. You know, and he writes him a ticket, <laughs> um, and then, and then you know the, they go into a little bit more. And again, you you, you see John McLean using his detective skill, and he thinks something's a little fishy with some of the people around him. So he goes to follow him, and as it turns out, they're you know they're setting up equipment to be able to take over the airport. Uh, John McLean kills one of them, and uh, this is where he starts getting into it with uh, Dennis Franz. Dennis Franz is the type of the way that he's written in this movie. Uh, we all know him from, from um, NYPD Blue. He was Sipowicz. We all got to know his butt back then. Sipowicz's ass was famous. It should have had its own talk show. Anyway, so Sipowicz's ass uh, gets into this whole thing with, with John McClane. And he, as I said, he is, he is this one-note character. You know, I talked a lot about how the other characters, even if they didn't have a lot of screen time, were at least somewhat fleshed out and had stuff to do. He has one note this entire film and that is John McClane sucks, and that he's the big cheese, and he's half an idiot. That's it. He is just there to yell. That's his whole role in this movie. He's there to yell a lot. They even give him an opportunity for redemption. Later on in the film, when John McClane figures out that the, um, that the Army Special Forces that were sent in to help, the, uh, to help take down the terrorists are actually on the terrorist side, and there's a fire, there's a faked firefight. So when, when Don McClain's trying to explain that to him and then he fires off the gun with the blanks in it. You know, finally, he's like, okay, I obviously, you know what you're talking about. And we should have been following your lead all along. And we have nobody else to turn to. So I will follow you, my captain, my captain. We will go into battle together. And they give him a, and they start to go somewhere and they immediately hit a cab. And then he shows up at the end of the movie, and his big thing is he tears up the ticket that he got at the beginning of the movie. That's it. That's all that's accomplished.
1: Yeah, but you know what? Part of my problem with this movie is everybody is just reduced to playing stock characters.
0: Yeah, he's the worst, though. He's
1: absolutely the worst. Say this for Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman was not really playing necessarily stereotypical Euro-trash villain here. Uh, He actually kind of created himself a a little bit of a character who just happened to be German. On the other hand, okay, Vito is every stock Italian New York stereotype in movies ever. Dennis Franz is every adversarial git cop ever. Yeah. I I mean, it... uh, Maybe this just what's popping into my mind
0: i was gonna say it's a it's just people who write in hollywood just hate police maybe they do but I, I feel like they can never write police in movies as anybody that's ever helpful everyone's a fucking you know access to loud mouth you know unless they're the hero of the film they they're they're just awful people it's as if somewhere in the back of someone's mind they, they decided that people get up when, one morning and decide they're, they're just going to be hateful individuals and the one place they can be hateful is the police department you okay, know what? that's not every cop Okay, I just need to you know our good friends the police they are, 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 are they're normal people who
1: are really just trying to help you know what 31 years I have been raised by a police officer and I've been raised around various personalities of law enforcement I don't think I have ever met one that, that, I could, that I could confidently say, you are just like a cop that I've seen on a crime drama or, or a, a movie. Not one single solitary one. The closest I would say I, I have seen are maybe a few of the detectives in Saw.
0: I was going to That's say, that they much more resemble characters from The Wire than they do Dennis Franz.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, nobody can ever get it right because, quite frankly, folks, to be honest, if you were to actually write them like real police officers, the show would be boring as all fuck.
0: <laughs> yeah, most,
1: be, police, most police and military
0: be, people I run into are very dry.
1: Yeah, it would be it would be canceled by the first commercial break of the pilot. So I get why it has to be done, but still, even if you're going to try to dress it up a little bit, you can say, still. The,
0: the you cops, can, you know, hang on, I just it, want to it, it, get this it, one line out there: the the cops in real life are closer to Ben Stein than they are Ben Grimm.
1: Yeah, actually, that's that's a pretty good comparison. Um... I was gonna say, you know, you, you don't have to be Dennis Franz in this in this movie. You're allowed to be Richard Belzer. You, know, you, you can be Detective John Munch. You can be Detective Elliot Stabler.
0: Just don't be Ice you know, T. Please don't
1: be I'm Ice T. Tr- no, no, please, for the love of God, don't be iced um, <laughs> <laughs> T. That, that that would imply you at some point have to bump uglies with Coco. Um,
0: but, and then you'll end up on One's music page. Da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm really just kidding. We're moving on. Go on, Sean. <laughs>
1: uh, every time we, play, we plug an A.J. Gray article, an angel loses an erection. Uh, um, no, but I mean, you don't... Have, I swear somebody in Die Harder actually uses the phrase, you're a loose cannon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, is, that, that I believe almost, it's when
0: John McClane is is talking about the faked firefight and that you know and that the army guys have uh, turncoated and and um, that's about when Dennis Front says you know you're a loose cannon and you know what you're under arrest.
1: You know what? That is having that line in a movie is almost as bad, almost as bad. And at some point, actually including the phrase, it was the best Christmas ever.
0: (laughs) It's right up there with I'm getting too old for this shit.
1: Or or it was a dark and stormy night. Take your pick. (laughs) Any of the fucking above. But just, at this point, though, I guess the cliches just hadn't quite been pistol-whipped enough. (laughs) Like a smart-ass, street-level drug-dealing subject, or suspect, during interrogation?
0: I I, want to put this out there. We're spending so much time talking about Dennis Franz because he's one of the only memorable characters in this whole movie. You know, other than the people that you're already familiar with. Honestly, Dennis Franz is the only one that stands out in Die Hard 2. William Sadler played his character fine if they were going for stoic mercenary who is completely unmemorable. Right, he's well, a rogue US Army colonel.
1: But either way hell, we've got uh we have got William Atherton playing a fine William Atherton.
0: Yes, he, he resumes his role as Richard Dick Thornburg. Um who who got punched in the first movie and he gets tased in this one by Holly Gennaro. Fantastic. Um but yeah, I, I—that's I, the thing. The villains in this movie are just kind of doing stuff, you know. Uh, you know, Alan Rickman—you got to kind of know as a character. You got to know him as a villain. There was time spent with him. Um, he was as much a part of the movie, you know, a, a, as the Joker was to Batman, and Tim Burton's Batman was Alan Rickman to Bruce Willis and Die Hard. They—you they, could not have one without the other. Um, and they—and ca- they both shouldered the burden of that movie very well. In this mm-hmm. one. In this one, William Sadler isn't shouldering anything he's just you know he is he has he has the stakes and he's just moving them down the field you know as the movie progresses, he moves him down the field, he's doing stuff, and he's not in any way shape or form memorable you know he has like a final fight scene on the wing of the plane with Bruce Willis, and it's like um okay, you know he wasn't he you know it's like you can. You, we talk a lot about you know, on this show about villains who chew scenery and they're so over the top. But at least then you're invested in them in some way, even if they're silly. He was so understated that, like, by the time they got to the final fight scene, it was like he might as well have been fighting one of the henchmen. I, I just didn't care. I was more invested in John Amos. John. As, plays, John,
1: uh, plays, as long as we're going to be making wrestling reference here. It, it, it was like watching Ric Flair trying to carry a match with the British Bulldog. You know, what, you you know that you know who's going to end up doing all the work in this movie. You just kind of need the other guy to, uh, to to just sort of be there. Just just be there. Just kind of do what I tell you to, and everybody else will just kind of will just kind of work around it. Unlike the other movies wherein Rickman is actually trying to contribute something, and actually so is everybody, so are all the other villains around him for that matter. In this case, Sadler is just, yep, I'm here. Just tell me where to stand. What's the yep. line? Yeah.
0: Again, John Amos, says that, John Amos, at least, you know, he comes in. He's trying to take control of the situation. He's kind of bumping heads with John McClane, you know, and finally when he realizes John McClane's getting a little too close for comfort – you know, he, uh, you know he, you know he he sends Dennis Franz away and he acts like he's friends and they you know, and then he goes through the fake firefight, um, you know and, and at least you've spent some time with John Amos and so when he makes his when he makes the turn when he's when he reveals himself to be the betrayer, um, I guess that's the big swerve in the movie. I, as I misspoke before because there is no other misdirection in this other than those guys are not the good are not the good guys. So when he's the when when, when he turns out that he's the big swerve and you know he is the betrayer um you're at least like oh john mclean get the get get john amos he turned his back on you he turned his back on this country you're more involved with this character who shows up for five minutes in this movie than you are any at any time with william sadler um it it was in sort of an odd way of writing this movie but that's because they spent so much time dealing with the real villain of this movie dennis Franz, and damn it. Zipowitz's ass is the real villain of Die Hard 2. Mm You know, I keep making that joke, but you never once see him with his trousers off. No. And now I feel like I'm being intellectually dishonest. Folks, Long Road to Ruin apologizes for my intellectual dishonesty. You never once see Dennis Franz's ass throughout this movie. I just want to go on record (laughs) as
1: saying that. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, if you listen real closely, folks, you can almost hear the little hint a little hint of disappointment in Mark's voice that he gets to miss out on a classic per- trouser free performance from the man who first inspired him to perform this show live every other Tuesday without pants
0: in my underpants. That is correct. Uh, chocolate wine in hand or green tea, whatever the drink of the night is sans pants. That's how I do. That's how I like to do.
1: Yeah, or, or as the case would be tonight, uh, me bundled up in the black M7, and a uh, nice little shot of Jameson in my hand.
0: To any Hollywood producer, I don't know what Dennis Franz has done for the last 10 years, I don't know where he's been or what he's doing, but someone please put him in a movie where, for no good reason, he's not wearing pants. You
1: know, why why has no parody movie, for so many movies that really can't seem to tell the difference between parody and just making references, why has nobody done this? I don't know. I mean, the
0: Critic made the Critic did it once, you know, where uh you know, back when 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 uh um NYPD Blue was really, you know, was really popular and, you know, a lot of comedians were constantly talking about Dennis Franz's ass on network television. Um, the Critic, you know, they 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 did one of their flashes to uh, you know, I a mock up of NYPD blue and he was like, "Talk or I'm going to show you my ass." <laughs> and he pulls his pants oh, look, out. Yeah. And the
1: guy's like, "Get, get that out of here. here." I've been sitting here for the last 20 minutes trying to remember which show it was that did that. Thank you because yeah. for some reason, for God knows what reason, I thought it was Family Guy.
0: No, it was a Critic.
1: <laughs> yeah, you great- almost. was that was that palpable disgust that that I heard that um, in your voice. When I said that I thought that was a Family Guy joke?
0: No, I mean, it's certainly Family Guy type of humor, but, you know, before there was ever... Before Seth MacFarlane was a cultural icon that he is who killed a cartoon dog. Get over it, folks. Um, you know, the man only voices every, all, every character on the fucking show. Let it go. Uh, <laughs> people watch Family Guy right now writing into the show. Fuck off, Radulich. We loved Brian. Um now, I, I, before there was Family Guy, there was The Critic, and it was the funniest show on television, and it was way above people because it got canceled way right too quickly. All right. um I, I, I don't know what else to say about this movie. <laughs> you know, it, it was one of those deals where, you know, yes, they showed him being a detective, but the movie, I, I started talking about the pacing. And, you know, so they start off with the whole thing with the ticket and they move you right into the thing with, with the two terrorists, and then you're into, then you're into the tower. And unfortunately, I, I've been talking about it now for a while, but I can't, I can't get away from, from Dennis Franz. Every scene that he's in, he's yelling. So, so the movie just feels very, very rapid. It feels very oddly paced. And every time Dennis Franz you know, shows up, like, you, you can't absorb anything because he's too busy yelling and saying that, no, there's no such thing as ghosts. You know, it was like, all right, all, wait, we get it. You don't think John McClain's worth a shit. You know, he's been right about everything up to this point, by the way, but, you know, fuck off, you know, John McClane. It was one like, thing, like, he's so access to in this movie that he's not reacting to reality. That was, was a weird thing about it, and it messed with the pacing of the movie, in my opinion. You know, where you're just every scene you're just being hollered at and hollered at, and you can't absorb anything, and you know, and watch things take place. And then when they would shift to the villains, it was the polar opposite. It was just guys doing stuff, and you're like, I don't. What's happening? What's going on here? And then the only other time there was any real tension in the movie for me, where you found the general sense of dread, where you got to sort of watch people deal with a situation that they had no control over, was uh, the scenes with Holly in the plane. Um, You know, there's some fun stuff with her and the stewardesses and uh, Richard Thornburg, you know, they're (laughs) they're like, oh, you know, we hate this guy, too. Would you like some champagne? That sort of thing. Um, So but, you know, there's that that feeling of out of control dread, you know, and then they gave him something to do on the plane once they realized that they could tap into the radio Um, and kind of figure out what was going on, he starts, you know, he starts doing what he did in the first movie, which is he's reporting on the situation and putting everybody in danger, at which point they get him with the taser. But, you know, Mm -hmm. those were the only times I ever felt like the movie took a breath. Um, Yeah, I mentioned... Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I I was going to say, actually, the way you can really tell that Dennis Franz was the real villain in this movie... We've spent about double the time talking about him that we've spent talking about William Savage. This is becoming comparable to what we spent talking about Alan Rickman. We're almost to the point where we're going to have to move talking about Die Hard with a Vengeance (laughs) to the next show. Oh,
0: I figured we'd go over and talk about it. Unless you've got got a place to be.
1: Well, no, I don't, but don't we only have uh, two hours of total record time?
0: Nope. I made the show two hours. We have another hour of recording time left.
1: Oh, hey, fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. By I knew it was going
0: me. to happen. Sean, I love you like a brother. And what I have come to realize about you and I is, and this show is a good example of it, is you and I can't stay on topic. We start a show at 9 o'clock. The show doesn't actually start until 9.30 because we spend the first half hour talking about everything but the central topic. I can't get through an <laughs> introduction. Okay?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but I think, um, I think people like that, though. I think people have taken a liking
0: to it. <laughs> Tune into Long Road to Ruin, where for the first half hour we will talk about absolutely nothing. So, um, so having thought of that ahead of time, I was like, you know, we haven't done a show in a month and we, I'm sure with Die Hard there's a lot of things to talk about. I don't want to be, fe- I don't want to rush because I've, I've gone back and listened to a couple of the shows and I realized because I put a 90 minute time, you know, I put 90 minutes on this because like, I want to go do other stuff. I was like, no, what? No, I want to let this breathe. I want to give it the time that it deserves. So I gave two hours of live time and then, Uh, blog talk gives you an hour for free of of recording time so we can actually go up to three hours
1: oh okay
0: Uh, if we go that long i'll be surprised no i won't but (laughs) the idea is not to go that long but we do have that time so folks in about 10 minutes uh we will go uh into radio silence where we'll continue to record the podcast but you will not be able to hear us any longer you'll have to go back and listen to the show once it's archived after its conclusion Anything else about um, Die Hard, Die Harder two? Um, you know, I, I mentioned before Bruce Willis uh, can't stop the, the British plane from crashing. Um, you know, and it was one of the few really good scenes of the movie. And it, you know, and gave us some depth, more depth of the character. You know, he isn't the Superman. He you know he couldn't save these people, hard as he tried. No, there was nothing to be done. The villain got one over on him. Um, anything else you want to say about that or is there anything else that you want to say about the movie in general
1: not really stunned as I am to say it I kind of can't believe we've gotten this much mileage out of talking about it Um, (laughs) I didn't think think we were going to have a lot to say about the bad sequels until we got to uh, the two most recent debacles
0: that's going to be a fun podcast so 1990 Die Hard 2 um, 1995 May 19th 1995 uh, Die Hard 3 otherwise known as Die Hard with a Vengeance starring Bruce Willis, Jeremy Irons and Samuel Jackson Samuel Jackson who has been in every movie ever since 1970 um, 90 million dollar budget 366 million at the box office. Um, obviously this was a large success. Funny story about this My dad and I went to go see this in the movies, and uh, we ran into some friends of mine, and we went and we sat with them, and we were like, oh, hey, you know, what's going on? How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm sitting there talking with my buddy, and I'm almost like, you know, Sammy's in this. Now, back then, it was 1995, um, you know, I've graduated from high school. Um, I'm on my first, I think the end of my first year of college. Yeah, I graduated in... June of 94. This is May. Of, yeah, okay. So my first year, this is the end of my first year of college. And I'm um, back in New York after having gone to Pittsburgh for a, year, for a semester. And uh, we were big into Samuel L. Jackson. I don't remember quite what the reason was. Probably because of Pulp Fiction. I know um, yeah. Pulp Fiction had come out earlier, uh, late 94, I believe. And my friends and I were absolutely, especially us film guys were absolutely obsessed with pulp fiction. And thus we became obsessed with Samuel L. Jackson, who I think after Pulp Fiction had become a cultural phenomenon, I think that's when they started putting Samuel L. Jackson in every fucking picture ever. So we were all obsessed with him. And yeah. I leaned over to my buddy, I said, You know, Chuck, Sammy's in this He's like, the fuck are you talking about I'm like, Sammy? You know. Sammy Jackson. We called him Sammy. And he's looking at me. He was like, I know who you're talking about. I watched Pulp Fiction too, all 7,000 times. Um, he's not in this movie. And I'm like, yes, he is. Samuel Jackson's in this movie. No, he's not. And we're, like, arguing with each other. I'm like, wait, what movie is this? He's like, um, this is, oh, shit. Uh, fuck, Harris, damn it, I just had the movie. Um, clear and Present Danger.
1: Ah, uh, yes. One of the better Jack Ryan movies.
0: So uh, apparently, we had walked into the wrong movie. <laughs> <And> <laughs> we uh, we unfortunately saw the first ten minutes of Clear and Present Danger before we realized, "Hey, wait a minute, this isn't the movie we came to see." And we ran out and we walked in and we you know we got into the right movie. But um, and, clear, and, and he was correct, Samuel Jackson not in Clear and Present Danger. <laughs> as much as I, I, I said he was I thought I was talking about Die Hard 3 in any case <laughs> um, Die Hard 3 uh, I have a lot of problems with this movie <laughs> Robert Winfrey our, our, is our producer for tonight has just sent me another message he said Samuel Jackson was in Patriot Games though thank you not totally relevant to the discussion but I appreciate that anyway sir Talk to you on Thursday. Uh, actually, before we go any further, I promised Jesse Starcher I would bring this up. Um, my last point on Die Hard 2, then we'll get back on Die Hard 3. Uh, he sent me a clip, and I didn't have enough time to upload it, but he sent me a clip of what he thought was the greatest TV sensor of all time. The, uh, at the end of Die Hard 2, um, they're fighting on the plane, they're fighting on the wing of the plane, and, and Bruce Willis actually tears the cap off the, uh, the fuel dump and fuel starts leaking from the plane, and, uh, you know, he falls off the plane, or he gets kicked off, rather, by uh, William Sadler, and uh, he takes out a, liar, a lighter, and as we all know in the movie, because he has to say this in every movie, this is his I'll be back, you know, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, which he says once, in context, in the first movie, because he keeps being called cowboy by
1: Alan yeah, Rickman. No, I, that's, and that's why I hate they keep repeating it. Is, Every other time. It has no context. The yeah, first it, time, really became, it really became the I'll
0: be back, that they had the shoehorn to every Arnold Schwarzenegger movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was... this In the first movie, it was glib. It was kind of clever. That was why I liked it. It wasn't just a catchphrase. It was actually kind of a kind of a sweet comeback. One of the few that uh, kind of a, a regular Joe who's not a real dry wisecracker like John McClane... Actually, gets to make right. It, it, it just waters it down after after that. The, but the other
0: thing of it is, is that at the beginning of the movie, when he won't reveal who he is, and Alan Rickman's just trying to figure some things out about him, he you know he calls him Cowboy, and he was like, yeah, just call me Roy Rogers. And for a while, he's Roy throughout the movie, and so it would make. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, because of the whole cowboy thing, that's why he says yippee kaye. That's a cowboy thing. But, you know, because he's got to be a badass about it, you PKA motherfucker, right? With an A at the end of it, because you're from the streets. Um, so they shoehorned it into this movie for no good reason, uh, because Hollywood. And so he takes up a lighter. He lights the plane. He lights the gasoline on fire from the plane. The the the, the fire goes all the way up. I'm actually motioning this with my hand on radio so you can't see it. Um <laughs> And, and then they blow, and he blows the plane up, and, and as the plane blows up, he says, yippee ki motherfucker. Now, you can't say that. Even on Superstation, you can't, say, you can't curse, you can't say motherfucker at least, uh, on TNT, the Superstation, Spike, USA Network. You, you can't say it on cable television. You have to say it on subscription TV.
1: And
0: he says, yippee-ki-yay, mister Falcon.
1: having never seen (laughs) 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 seen I'm looking at
0: it right now yippee-ki-yay Mr. Falcon I don't know who Mr. Falcon is he's not in this movie I'll go back to the Wikipedia page I'm damn certain there's no Mr. Falcon
1: in this movie (laughs) and now and now, part of me wants to just do an overdub of that movie, <laughs> where just find, just find a clip where where McLean is fighting somebody, and just dub in there just a good hearty Falcon punch. Fucking <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> just, <laughs> so, just, just so we can maybe identify who Mr. Falcon is.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, okay. I have to walk away for a moment. I have a family issue that just got up out of bed after a a long nap. So I am going to uh, put Sean on the spot here, but I know I can do that because he's awesome. And I am going to let him kind of talk us through a little bit of um, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which Bruce Bruce Willis, John McClane, back into New York for no good reason other than plot said so, Meanwhile, this is a mere five years after the last
1: movie. I'm going to to try to provide kind of a little bit of the factual background since you kind of got the outline for everything everything else.
0: I will let you know when I am back.
1: All right. So 1995 rolls along, and here we are now having made – Two more Die Hard movies that arguably should have been made in the first place. Uh, Really, it bears noting at this point that Die Hard really should have probably stopped after one movie. Granted, the other movies did well financially, and thereby, by Hollywood law, yes, we must have sequels. We must have sequels until we start seeing either diminishing returns or outright embarrassing losses. So, of course, since they keep making money hand over fist, we got Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, As we mentioned previously, this is Bruce Willis, of course, once more back as John McClane. This time around, Samuel L. Jackson is stepping into sort of what I guess you could call the uh, Reginald L. Johnson role here of being the reluctant sidekick who happens to just come upon McLean by virtue of happenstance and ends up tagging along throughout this wild ride. Uh, Jeremy Irons is, he's arguably the villain that I, one of the villains that I hate most of this entire franchise because he is playing Simon Peter Gruber. Whose gimmick is he wants to string McLean along and essentially torture him on the way to probably eventually killing him, and does it by beginning every challenge with Simon says, which unfortunately not this is a big improvement. I I happen to of course uh, associate more with Demolition Man because that's a much better movie. Oh, and look, Mark's back. Mark, take over for me. I was just getting through talking about the cast.
0: Uh, funny you mentioned Demolition Man and the whole Simon Says thing. Yeah, it works a lot better in that movie. It you really know, does. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, when, when I'm forced to save a movie, Wesley Snipes did it better. <laughs> wow. Wow. The plot needs to be on a milk carton because you have fucking lost it so goddamn hard.
0: So this was definitely – Die Hard 3 is definitely a case of let's get rid of all the shit we seemingly don't need. You do need it, but they seem to think you don't. Let's get rid of all the crap we don't need in this movie and just focus it around the guy that we think makes all these movies money. And we'll give him Samuel Jackson and a retarded plot. And we'll stretch this out over New York city. I, I, I honestly think this movie should have been sponsored by like the New York city board of tourism. I mean, it was like, let's show you everything from Harlem to wall street. This is your tour of New York city For, I mean, people are going to be like, why are you reading? Why are you focusing so much on this one detail? Cause it really bothers me. He was fine. His marriage was fine. It, it's as if they write they write these movies with no respect to the character or anything that was set up, any part of the canon. It, it's just like we're just going to change things because fuck Kali, you know <laughs> we don't need the wife. The wife's just weighing them down. I don't know if they couldn't bring the actress the actress back for this. I, I don't know, you know what the rationale behind it was. I'm assuming it's it's literally we don't care. <laughs> like, let's All we want is Bruce Willis, so who fucking cares? Um, But I always felt like the wife was an integral part of his character in the story. You know, he was in both the movies, and this is an element that you really need to be aware of. He's doing all of this to save his wife. In the first movie, the reason he's fighting the terrorists is because his wife's a hostage and he's trying to save her. In the second movie, his wife's a hostage and he's trying to save her. It just happens to be in a plane this time. So you take the wife out of this, and he has no personal stakes, which is actually one of the elements of this movie, and it makes him an antihero in a lot of ways. You know, in this movie, the setup is that he's on suspension, he's a drunk, he's estranged from his wife again. I don't know why he's back in New York City because he was an LA police officer five years ago, in uh, in the second Die Hard movie. So it's like you know, you left New York. You became an L.A. officer. Now you've left L.A. to gone back to being a New York police officer again? But why? There's no explanation for this. And then when they try to explain it in the film, it's retarded. Yeah, my wife and I had a fight, and I haven't called her back.
1: Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who was uh, who was wondering about that, who was wondering what the hell he was doing back in New York.
0: Yeah, it, and it, it, they don't explain why he's back in New York. They, they just explain, like, why he's not, you know where the wife went and you know they, they they had an argument and he didn't call her back and then Samuel L. Jackson makes fun of him for it it was I was like A. that's weak B. that makes me like this character less you know and didn't we already establish in the first movie he was kind of a shitty human being and the whole point was you know he was trying to redeem himself because he had no because he realized his wife and his family were important did he forget that in the subsequent years? <laughs> it's like well, after five years, I suddenly realized my wife's a whore and my kids are annoying, so fuck them. I'm gonna go to New York and be a drunk. Okay, so more
1: question: How exactly exact do you forget that after all that he's been through? <laughs> how, how does it make sense that everything that you would have learned through such life-altering events would have just all of a sudden just boof, slipped your mind? Yeah. I, I suddenly sort of
0: forgot my children. My wife and children were important.
1: Maybe that maybe that's why he's such a horrible being because John McClane just doesn't fucking learn.
0: <laughs> yes, every movie we're back to the beginning again. Yeah, I, <laughs> I hate the fact that they wrote him this way. They they wrote him as a very un. You, you know, the, the, the thing of it is, is you're rooting for John McClane in the first two movies. You know, especially you know especially when you have all of these people working against him. You know, and, and he's and he's been right every time. It's like why why won't you trust this man and you know and, and you realize that he's trying to redeem himself in the eyes of his wife and God and and you're rooting for him to do so like you want him to take her back you want her rather want her to take him back rather um, and so you remove all of that in Die Hard three and all you're left with is this meandering drunk who isn't worth rooting for so all the things that made John McClane cool. And all the things that made Die Hard a standout picture are gone in this movie. We are This movie isn't a Die Hard movie except for the big swerve uh, that kind of makes it like a Die Hard movie. And the fact they have a character named John McClane. You know, yeah. and, the, and, and the only other thing that connects it to the Die Hard franchise is the villain in this movie is the brother of the villain in the first movie. That's it. You, now, we're we, we've got some very very thin strings holding this one together.
1: Mark, was, was I the only one that was just cringing every time Jeremy Irons was on screen and just going, "You were scar." <laughs> I
0: thought his waist was too thin.
1: What the, the fuck? I, well, yeah, exactly. You know, he, lo- he you looked, know,
0: like, I, he looked he, like he looked like he looked like terrorist Ken to me. You know, like you actually, Ken and Barbie?
1: You, you made a mildly effeminate lion actually something threatening. What the fuck, Jeremy? Now you resort to... Simon says, Simon says, Simon says. Oh, come on. You're not a catchphrase guy. I mean, Wesley Snipes needed this because... Needed the catchphrase because, well, Wesley fucking Snipes. <laughs>
0: Wait till we get to Blade, everybody. <laughs>
1: You know what? I'm sorry. Uh, some people only have really one, really one great story in them. Wesley Snipes only had two great movies in him. Well, okay, three. Major Is One League of them, White and, Men Can't Jump. Like, no, no. And that's, <laughs> the White Man Can't Jump was okay for what was okay for what it was. The white Men Can't Jump, otherwise
0: known as We Hate White People.
1: Pretty much. Pretty much. Um except it's you know, Woody being Woody and Wesley being Wesley.
0: Always listen to the woman.
1: <laughs> and Rosie Perez being Rosie Perez. And yet somehow it's still entertaining.
0: Oh sorry, her scenes with the Jeopardy stuff are great. Alex, what is the Quiche? Um <laughs> uh. Anywho, um, yeah, I, I John McLean with, without without the wife and the and the, the reason to do any of this is just him running around the city doing stuff, and so instead of an in, instead of a wife that gave him um that gave him a a gay lover in uh in Samuel L. Jackson, I don't know what else to call him. It was the, the, these two a buddy cop movie, I guess. I don't know, but um you know you, you were. <laughs> Uh, anywho, you were talking about Jeremy Irons. You know what? We we took
1: this we, we took this one man against the world concept, and like you just said, we somehow done turned this shit into a buddy cop movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. This was this was this was terrible. Anyways, I, look, I, I have to say, Die Hard with a Vengeance. If you forget that it's a Die Hard movie and it's you know and it's just an action movie, is fine. It's it's schlock, it's just stuff happening on camera, and it's fun to watch if you turn... It's, 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 like Sean said earlier, it, it's one of those where if you get the message early enough in the movie to turn your brain off, you can have fun watching this thing. It is a fun thriller to, to sit through. However, if you connect it to the greater Die Hard franchise, it fails on almost every level. You were, again, you were talking about Jeremy Irons as Simon Gruber... And uh, who is the brother of Hans Gruber. And they set this up as a, this is a revenge thing, you know, that he's going after John McClane um, to punish him for killing his brother when that was just a convenient uh, fact. What he's really after is he's robbing uh, Wall Street. And everything is sort of set up to, you know, it, it, this reminds me of the Dark Knight Rises. So oh. they figured it. They figured out that Bane is living underneath the streets in the sewers, and Commissioner Gordon sends every cop in the universe down into the sewers so that then Bane can cave them in and havoc can uh, ensue throughout the city, and the people who have grown too fat can be you know can, can be hurt by those who have uh, who have grown too thin or whatever the fucking thing Catwoman says. So. And and everyone who has ever criticized The Dark Knight Rises asks the same question: Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you send just a team into? Why does Bane need the entire police department to come after him? This isn't the two guys who bombed the Boston Marathon. You don't need everybody. You only need (laughs) you only need a few. Um. Too soon? No, no.
1: Well, I. eh.
0: I hear you laughing. I'm good.
1: Um it, it, it judgment call, but yeah, i will allow it.
0: <laughs> thank you, thank you, your honor. Um, now, seriously, like it, well, you don't need the entire Gotham police force to go in after Bain, and you don't need the entire New York City police department to abandon Wall Street, where they can then you know th- that was the whole big thing in this which was there's a bomb in a school somewhere, so they go searching every school for the bomb and that leaves Wall Street completely unprotected, where they can rob the Federal Reserve Bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you
0: know, it's like, okay, if you don't think too much about this, that's fine and everything, and that's a fun swerve and all that. But it, the moment you stop to think, of it, you're like, hey, wait a minute, how does this make sense?
1: Yeah, and, then, you know and that's exactly the problem, is the fact that in the first one, it wasn't really needlessly complicated. It, right. it wasn't exactly a real... It wasn't exactly a real intricate plan, necessarily, that these guys came up with. If if you watch how it progressed, really, it was pretty simple, and everything goes off without a hitch, except one off-duty NYPD cop happens to be there at the time. And, I mean, you can't possibly count on that. It's not like there there was something in this plan that they just didn't think of. And, at no point are you sit there thinking of this like, this is something that a mildly retarded comic book villain would come up with. <laughs> where, it just, where you just go, where in the glitter-farting fuck did you come up with the resources to string all this together? When in, when in the bluest of all possible sky-blue hells did you make the time to actually detail all this out. Just, do you really have nothing else to live for?
0: <laughs> yes. You know, how did you design a fake bomb and get it into the school? How did you, you know, set up the water bomb? How, it like, You know, and, and that's the thing. If Again, if you're just, if you're just there to watch John McClane run around the city and shoot stuff, um, mission accomplished. I, however, found that to be lacking you know I, I didn't you know I watched it the other night, and I was like the whole first hour of the movie is shit it's it's pointless and it isn't until uh it isn't until the Wall Street scene where um you know where they're they're sent off to go to the park, but the 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 robbery actually takes place up the film for me even gets going, and then you have a, another useless swerve at the end where you know, this is supposed to be political, and, you know, how do you bring equality? Well, you reduce all of the rich countries to poor countries, and so we're going to take, you know, all the gold in the Federal Reserve, and we're going to throw it in the ocean, except that we're really not. This isn't political at all. I just want to be rich. Really? Was that necessary? Like, did we did we need the political part of this? Why couldn't you just be bank robbers?
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost like he's got – his brother's whole rationale completely backwards. (laughs) I'm going to to masquerade as a terrorist so that I can actually actually just steal a metric fuckton of money. Instead of this one, uh, he, he, again, completely, absolutely loses the plot. The world's finest GPS couldn't help him find it, and he's got it just totally bass-ackwards. And what
0: was the point of Samuel Jackson's character? I, he doesn't. He does. John McLean doesn't grow an inch in this movie. He's not redeemed in any way. He, he. He. You don't know why he's suspended. You know, and the whole thing is, if this, if they're saying that his growth is resting upon that stupid remark about the phone call, they might as well not even put it in the movie. That's not growth, people. You know, if, if my wife calls me and I don't call her back. And then I come home, and she's like, "Oh, you, you should have called me." And I go, "You're right. I should have called you uh, before I got home. Sorry, didn't think about it." Okay, that's not personal growth. I, I yes, I have made a I have made a decision. I have decided to do something differently based on my wife's nagging. But that's not personal growth. Not 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 the kind that you need to see in a feature film.
1: Not well, something to rest the film on. It. Growth comes from an actual understanding of of consequences and causality. In this movie, we don't even know what caused what. We don't know the cause. We don't know what necessarily what the effect was. We can't say anything about cause and effect because we don't know where. Because there's no effect to be found. Right. It might as
0: well have been Clucky running around doing all of this stuff. You know, yeah. and, in, <laughs> and instead, you know, and, and instead of. John McLean having personal stakes in this, you have him running around the city whining that he has a headache from a hangover. Because there's nothing I like more than my, than my heroes saving the day while whining about a headache. Again, that's not an obstacle for a hero to overcome. That's whining.
1: No. I, no, not, not to use the online cliche, that's, that's first world problems. <laughs>
0: But I like how they were like you know, if if the if the if we were actually like putting the producers and writers of this film on trial, they would be like, Ah, we object because the whole thing with the aspirin is what led him to find uh is what led him to find him later. <laughs> okay, did you catch that at the end of the movie? He's like, he's like I have a headache, do you have any aspirin? And he throws in the bottle and he sees something on the bottle, he goes, Ah, that's where he is
1: So, basically, he was more or less like Tallahassee in Zombieland. Just some out the Twinkie for the Astrum.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Um, I don't have a whole lot else to say about Die Hard 3. Um, again, Samuel L. Jackson's character was absolutely useless. You know, he's just there to yell anti-white things throughout the movie. <laughs> My Actually, my favorite part of this whole movie is is when Bruce Willis has just about had enough of Samuel L. Jackson. He goes, you know what your problem is? You're a racist. And he looks at him like, how dare you, sir? It doesn't work that way. I've been oppressed.
1: Therefore, I'm allowed to hate you. Don't you understand how things work? I, I kind of look at him more than being amazed, saying, you know, I've been making so many moves waiting for somebody to finally say that shit.
0: <laughs> this reminds me of a family guy bit where... Where uh I think Peter's gonna Peter's gonna yell out uh, a racial slur in the middle of the like the black part of town and the next time you see him he's riding a lion, he's got a crown on and he's like they respected
1: me. It's like, you don't hear about this, you're a racist. I was wondering when somebody was gonna notice.
0: Ding ling ling ling.
1: You got it. it is is pretty much the equivalent to Jules Winfield saying I've been saying that shit for years
0: yeah I want to read this while phoning to make amends with his estranged wife Holly, McLean realizes an aspirin bottle given to him by Simon gives an address in a border town of Quebec McLean and Carver alongside the Royal Canadian Mounted Police raid the warehouse where Simon and his men are preparing to distribute the gold uh huh that's awfully convenient and that's that, the problem with this movie.
1: That that's either awfully convenient or that is actual planning and detail that would make a Bond villain go, "Wow, subtle."
0: <laughs> All right, Sean. Um, I, I I don't have anything else to say about Samuel Jackson yelling, "I hate white people" throughout this entire movie. I don't have anything else to say about. Bruce Willis whining about his stupid headache um, and then not giving important important details as to why he left his wife, why he came back to New York, and why he's suspended, and why everybody in his department hates him, despite the fact that he's proved himself on a number of occasions to be a good detective. Um, Again, apparently none of that stuff matters. Uh, And, of course, the entire New York City Police Department has taken its cues from um, Gotham Police Department in uh, not knowing how to utilize their resources.
1: You know what? Uh, I, I have nothing else to say about this, except that, you know, in a perfect world in Hollywood in which artistic actual integrity kind of sort of mattered, uh, we would have a lot fewer sequels, because quite frankly, this... Die Hard was a movie that never needed one and really never should have had one. I get the rationale. I, I get the, I get the financially lucrative aspect of it. I certainly understand that. But, quite frankly, every other movie just completely proceeded to miss the point just further and further and further. Um, it's it's like playing a game of hot and cold, and the more you try to get the point across to somebody, they're getting further from what they're looking looking for, the more they just continue walking in that same direction. And it's it's killed the legacy of the movie really because of that. Because if you're going to continue it and you're going to actually try to have the character learn something and develop something along the way, okay. That's fine. Otherwise, this franchise really suffers from the same thing that well, quite frankly Highlander started suffering from after a while after a while we're making sequels just for the sake of sequels not because we can really necessarily take uh, Connor McCloud or Duncan McCloud any, anywhere further but just because fucking money, that's why and All right, we, have
0: a guest, we have a guest and uh, she sat down with me for a little bit of Die Hard 3 so Lily, come here for a second Come here. What did you think of Die Hard 3, honey? Well,
1: I said
0: I only I you weren't happy? Okay, you weren't happy with it. I got that. What else? Oh. You don't know why they made the movie either. Neither do we, honey. Yeah, it's frustrating.
1: Lily, you are totally filling in for me the next time I need to take a few weeks off for a breather.
0: All right, Uh, the entrance of my child, who should have been asleep by now, you're going, okay, thank you, honey, has has, um, uh, brought us, I think, to the end of this podcast.
1: (laughs) You know what, sometimes the podcast is like Toy Story, where everything just makes sense and comes together so beautifully and so cohesive, and there's so many deep things to talk about. Then we get to
0: Die Hard. <laughs> Look, let, let me let me sum it up this way. Die Hard was a perfectly, you know, was one of the best action movies of all time. We, you know, I have nothing but glowing praise for the whole thing. Die Hard 2 was unnecessary, but at least it was consistent within the Die Hard universe. And might I mention uh once again um Sipowicz's ass? Die Hard 3 wasn't a Die Hard movie. <laughs> um and then, then and if Die Hard 3 wasn't a Die Hard movie, Then the next two, I don't even know what to say about them. Uh, Live Free or Die Hard and A Good Day to Die Hard, which I haven't even seen yet, but I have heard is absolute trek, are great examples of a studio saying, we want to make a $100 million plus picture. Um, We're going to put Bruce Willis in it. We're going to call it Die Hard. But this is nothing like a Die Hard movie. It doesn't matter. Just give it a funny Die Hard name, put Bruce Willis in it, and blow shit up. That's Somebody want
1: share- to Somebody wanna share with me how it is that the titles just keep getting worse?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, Live Free or Die Hard, I want to say, takes place around Memorial Day. Uh, I'm, I'm looking it up on... Um, I, I remember there was, there was a... Re- other than it taking place, I think, in D.C., there was another reason why they went with Live Free or Die Hard. Um, maybe it was strictly because it was around D.C., yeah none of these will take place around Christmas by the way, from now on. I mean, I don't know about the about the, the last one, but I know these two didn't This one starts in the uh, die Hard three is in the summer um, like this is like the beginning of the school year and then um the film's name was adapted from New Hampshire state motto live free or die hard a list' live free or die um, McClane is attempting to stop cyber terrorists who hack into a government and commercial computers across the United States with a goal to start a fire sale of financial assets. Okay. (laughs) And then the next one's in Russia. So, you know, Russians are like Klingons. Klingons say it's a good day to die.
1: I guess...
0: Yippee-ki-yay, Mother Russia.
1: Huh? Huh? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These are still fucking stupid titles. (laughs)
0: Uh, I can't I'm trying to come up with another like funny way of putting of shoehorning diehard into a dumb expression and it's so late and it's so stupid I can't think of one uh, a stone is worth two diehards in the bush
1: uh, suck my big fat fucking diehard on <laughs>
0: That's uh, funny. Oh, um, uh, gosh. Let's see. Alabama. We dare to defend our diehard. Arizona. Um, Arizona.
1: You, you, Arizona, you, 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 you God mentioned and rich diehard. I'm sorry, go ahead. You mentioned Alabama, though. And all I think about is that story from this past weekend wherein somebody actually got shot at a party by someone else who thought the victim was not upset enough that Alabama lost to Auburn.
0: Uh, Okay, here's the next one. It's going to take place in Connecticut. It's called He Who Transplanted Die Hard.
1: You're coming up with a lot of these more than I am. I'm totally drawing a complete blank.
0: That's because I'm, I'm looking at a list of state models on Wikipedia. Hawaii, the life of the oh. land is perpetuated in Die Hard.
1: Uh, I can steal from Breaking Bad. Why can't you just die hard?
0: <laughs> there we go. That's the next Die Hard 6. Why can't you just die hard?
1: <laughs> or, 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 yeah, you mentioned Hawaii. Take DJ Penn's motto Just Die Hard.
0: Uh, Missouri, let the welfare of the people be diehard. Alright. Uh, that brings us to our awkward conclusion of this podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, talk about Live Free or Die Hard, and uh, it's a good day to die hard. And if, and if we continue to follow the trend of these movies, this just is going to get. This is going to be one of those podcasts where Sean and I yell a lot, <laughs> <laughs> or laugh a lot, or laugh while we're yelling, or yell while we're laughing. And who knows what's going to happen? Um, Sean, the, the, only, the only thing we can promise is loud noises. I will be. Um, I'm going to show everyone my ass. I'm going to do the next podcast as Dennis Franz as uh, Sipowicz. That's my Is goal. that
1: really how we want to introduce our listeners to the video era of Long Road to Ruin? Um, yes.
0: Benjamin, you now have your next uh, title card. Just my, my ass hosting a podcast. A little bit of shirt over it. A little bit.
1: <laughs> we, go, we go from an absolutely spectacular card this week to, to, to you having a shirt covering your butt crack.
0: <laughs> I said nothing about covering. I said a little bit of shirt. Just, a, just a teeny bit.
1: Dear God, Benjamin, I pray this is the part of listening to the show where you got up to get a snack and came back wondering what you missed.
0: <laughs> uh, Long Road to Ruins, starring your host, my ass. It's my co-host, John Comer. Get up, i show you my ass.
1: You jackass, you came this close to owing me a new laptop for that. <laughs> right. because, um because Edie just nearly got a fresh coat of Jameson with that spit take I almost did. Okay,
0: we'll be back um in a week. Normally it's every other week, but um we're we're as we've said a number of times over the last few weeks, uh we're doing three back to back shows. So um, a week from tonight is the second part of the Die Hard franchise, doing doing Die Hard 4 and 5. And then uh, the week after that will be the Santa Claus trilogy. And then we're done for the year. Uh, We got Christmas and New Year's, and then we'll be back January 7th, I believe, uh, where we'll be doing another two to three hour podcast, doing all four Aliens movies in one shot. So that's why uh, we're going a little bit longer than normal so that's that's what we got going on uh sean go ahead and do your plugs
1: uh nothing much to plug um this week try to get over to soulexo.com and check out more of the artwork of our wonderful title card artist and pretty much the official new member of the rodlichen broadcast network and long road to ruin family benjamin J. cologne thank you again ben for the great art this week And also, well, we're also going to use it next week for the shows, too. Um, Sunday night slash Monday morning, depending on just how late you decide to stay up for it, go check out uh, Give Life Back to Music over in the 411mania.com music zone. Starting next week, I'm starting a four-week retrospective on Daft Punk. Welcome to daft December. We start with their debut album, Homework, and are going to work right up through uh, Random Access Memories and the absolutely amazing Tron Legacy soundtrack. And as Pluggery goes, gee, I don't really have another podcast or anything going on, so that's about it for me. Okay. Um,
0: Go ahead and check out uh, the podcast that we did throughout the month of November on the Metal Hammer of Doom, we reviewed St. Anger. I got an awesome tweet today from Lars Ulrich's Snare, which was great. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Um, so we did St. Anger, and then we did the Best and Worst, uh, where I played a lot of covers, um, on the Metal Hammer of Doom. Check out the ca- quick thing on the Casual Heroes. Yes, the Casual Heroes are still a part of the Rattaligen Broadcasting Network. So, why wasn't the draft on the and Broadcasting Network? Well... But whatever the reason was, and this is the first time I've run into this problem, um, Blog Talk Radio caps you at 100 uh, megabytes per um, per download and per upload, rather. And we were it was significantly over. And I have yet to figure out how to compress the file enough so that I can fit it. Um, Larry Zonko is able to do it using Audacity. I haven't figured it out how to do it on my computer. So I'm still struggling with getting that up. So just just don't worry about it. Just go to thecasualheroes.com and listen to the draft. I've listened to it like half a dozen times. And I I still think it's one of the funniest podcasts I've ever been on. And this is coming from the guy who couldn't stop laughing when someone asked if you put the uh, cancer-curing eggs with the cancer-causing sugar and make a cake out of it. Uh, what would happen. And, you know, I, I it was hard to get back on track after that. That was years ago. Um, I have been a part of many podcasts where I've laughed a lot. I've never laughed as hard as I did during that show. It was a lot of fun um, and something I recommend everyone listen to. And God damn it, support my fantasy wrestling league with Goldberg as the guy, Ultimate Warrior as the babyface, CM Punk as the heel, Samoa Joe as the worker um, Petey Williams is my cruiserweight, Eric Bischoff the authority, Gorilla Monsoon's the voice, Ron Simmons is the powerhouse, Jim Cornette's my manager, Shark Boy is my jobber, the Dudley Boys are my tag team, Sabu is my evil foreigner, Lita is my is my diva. Abdullah the Butcher is my super heavyweight and Norman Smiley is my comedy wrestler. Huh? That's money right there. Goldberg, Brock Lesnar, uh, yeah, and Brock Lesnar is my monster heel. Um, Goldberg, Brock Lesnar, The Ultimate Warrior, Samoa Joe, CM Punk. Come on, that's Money in the Bank right there. Don't tell me I'm only going to be able to half sell out a Bingo Hall, Pat. You bastard! You. Sorry, did I go off on a rant there?
1: I can't believe I actually missed this whole thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, Casual Heroes, go listen to them.
1: This Saturday podcast is possibly made of magic.
0: It really was, especially when I announced that my main babyface was the Ultimate Warrior and the wheels came off the podcast. <laughs> First of all, half, the, half of the panel thought I was joking, and when the other half informed them that I was being serious, that's when things got outright silly.
1: <laughs>
0: um, check out the latest episode of Everybody Loves a Villain with host and tonight's producer Robert Winfrey, uh, he just him and Sean Comer did a great podcast of The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I had thought about calling in, but instead I, I opted to sit that one out. And when I went back and listened to it, you guys did an awesome job with it. I actually learned a lot, as I do with many of his podcasts. Um, so everybody loves the villains; really great. Robert does a great job with it, and uh, an excellent job with The Wizard of Oz. I will be on this Thursday and next Thursday, talking. Um, the golden age and the modern Disney animated villains. So mad, madam Mim P, uh, captain hook, Maleficent, the evil step queen, the evil step mother, the queen of hearts from Alice in Wonderland, the whole nine yards, all them folks that I've just watched because I have a kid. Um, and following week, we'll talk about the new ones, you know, Ursula, Gaston, uh, so on and so forth. um, The third week of Everyone Loves a Villain is where he's going to dedicate to Pixar, and I told him, you know, since I know you wanted to get in on this, that I would step down, and if you wanted to jump in on the Pixar one and be my guest. I think also Jeff Harris uh, had maybe put out some interest in doing it, too, so I figured you guys can fight over it. Um, In any case, if you love me and you love Robert Winfrey and you want to hear us talking about MMA, what was that?
1: So Jeff wants to do it. I'll take him right off.
0: All right, um, the three of you guys can work that out. Uh, if you love Robert Winfrey, you love Pat Mullen, you love me, and you want to hear us talking about fighting, every Sunday night at 9 o'clock is the one Ground and Pound radio show. Uh, this Sunday we'll be reviewing the greatest fight in the history of the UFC. Mark Hunt decides versus Bigfoot Silva in the land down under, baby. It's going to be gangbusters. Hot-butted popcorn. It's going to be terrific. Um, and Sh- Shogun Hua versus James the Tuna. It's going to be fantastic. Um fantastic. <laughs> Yes, James the Tuna. We'll also be previewing uh, the UFC on Fox card, which is now going to be headlined by uh, Demetrius Johnson versus Joe Benavidez 2 for the flyweight title. So that's uh, this Sunday at 9 o'clock. And lastly, check out the latest episode of The Right Hook, which is in the archives now from last week, um, where we were talking about the whole GSP Dana White thing, where oddly enough my friend uh, John the Radar Republican took Dana White's side in that whole affair. Um, and we talked about Frozen, which is the new animated Disney film. Talked about this and that. So check out the latest episode of The Right Hook. Uh, if you want to listen to The Right Hook live, it is ten o'clock Wednesday nights on fromtherightradio.com, and then after that, it shows up. It'll show up in the archive here on Blog Talk Radio. Um, listen to us on iTunes, rate us five stars. Listen to us on Stitcher, rate us five stars. Give us a shout. Give all you know. Give all the shows a shout. Check out Robert Cooper's. Uh, hentai, sentai, frentai podcast where he talks about Japanese stuff. I don't understand any of it. Um, All right, so I think that's everything and everybody. Uh, Thank you for joining us tonight on The Long Road to Ruin. I always love doing this show. We will see you in a week. Until then, be well, be safe, and behave.
1: (laughs)